0: everyone to the sixth episode of Maester Monthly, your favorite pseudo-monthly podcast hosted by the moderators of the Song of Ice and Fire subreddit. Today, we're going to hit on some of our hottest catches and nicest topics from the last month on the subreddit. We're also going to talk about the show, Game of Thrones, which is coming up soon. We're going to hit some special topics including costumes, cinematography, and music featuring all sorts of special guests like Kendrick Lamar, uh, <laughs> no, <hold
1: on. laughs> You guys got a chemical on.
0: Featuring all sorts of special guests from our roster of moderators. I'm one of your hosts, Michael, better known in these parts as Bookshelf Stud.
2: And I'm another one of your hosts, Eliana, better known in these parts as Glass Table Girl.
3: I'm Joe Magician, also known as Matt. I'm one I'm... of your
2: fight for it, fight for it, fight for it.
3: One of your Samuels, Sam
1: R.
0: Our friend from down under, who often joins us. We're also joined by a man who needs no introduction, but is going to make us give him one anyway.
1: Sup.
2: Brenton B. Fish. What's your name?
1: I'm <laughs> Jeff. I'm better known as Brendan B. Fish. Sup.
0: And I'm Aaron. I'm here. Hey. Okay. Yeah. First up on subreddit highlights, uh, Eliana, do you have something for us?
2: Yeah. So I thought there was this really fun post, and the title is Some Dumb Evidence for Someone Being Azora High, and it's short and sweet leads to some great discussion though. I'll just read out the whole post. User Zissa. Oh, sorry, <laughs> sorry, let me try this, this again. This is a hard
0: one. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh my god, now that I like look at it, how am I going to say this aloud? User Zissotherus.
1: Kississuthrus. Zissuthrus.
2: User Zissuthrus, spelled X-I-S-U-T-H-R-U-S, says Phaegon is supposedly the son of Elia Martell and Rhaegar Targaryen. The Martells are ethnically salt-dornish, while the Targaryens have an obvious symbolic association with fire. So one of Aegon's parents was salt, while the other was smoke. See what I'm getting at?
4: Whoa. And- wow. And
2: <laughs> actually, that someone did suggest they're like, wait, are you saying that he's barbecue and someone else says, no, he's a ham? Then the next person says Rumham, and then huh. they talk about Reynolds. The Reynolds family would definitely be Frey's. Mm-hmm. The phrase would be the Poils, and then well, I'm sorry, Rumham, Walder Frey, and wow,
0: this all checks out. Yeah, yeah, uh, um, but but aside and, aside from that,
2: <laughs> yeah, I thought this was a fun little post. You know, it led to a lot of really great discussion, especially about the ambiguity of prophecy.
0: The salt and smoke thing is so open. I mean, people justify it with tears they justify yeah. it with the ocean now they justify it with uh arbitrary terms for ethnicities i mean like i think he leaves it wide open
1: it's true yeah <laughs> the question i have about this post is whether well it could be three things one it could be true mm. two it could be th- like a false trail uh, or what's or like a like a red herring or three it could be completely unintentional on george's part we're just kind of picking up at it mm-hmm something that George didn't intend, which tends to be, I think, has a lot of currency when it comes to, to theorizing that. A lot of stuff when I read, I'm like, yeah, I, I just don't know that George is just that in-depth about his books that he's, he's thinking at the level that you're thinking at. Yeah. But he could be. He could be, obviously. I mean, the symbolism is there, the salt and the smoke portion of it. But I'm, I, do we really think that Aegon's actually Azor High reborn, young Griff, Aegon the Sixth? Probably a black fire. No. I
2: mean, you think John Connington is. Well,
1: obviously he is. Really?
5: (laughs) (laughs) Really? (laughs) The important thing for this is not whether we think this, it's whether Rhaegar would think this. I agree. And he is Mm. definitely stupid enough to think this is true. (laughs) I've been looking a lot into Rhaegar, and he is essentially throwing darts at the board from the time he's young until he dies, trying to figure out how to find the prince that was promised um when he first talks to Eamon, he thinks it's him he le- then changes to think it's his children then he changes from Elia Martell to Lyanna Stark he's all over the place this is completely wow something that would be in his wheelhouse of a crazy guess he Actually, made Actually yeah
6: I wonder how yeah. many salt and smokes he ran back and forth between <laughs> over the course of his life, just searching Tons. like, oh, here's the connection, no, that wasn't it, here it is. He's like, no.
2: Well, first he thought he was the salt and smoke, so was he just like, yeah, yeah, um, my mom's smoke, or <sighs> is my dad the smoke? Well, it's it was like, Summerhall. Summer, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right, he thought it was Summerhall.
1: Well, uh, Eamon thought it was Summerhall. The and tears. Then two of them. Yeah. When was, the, when was the point that Rhaegar actually abandoned the idea that he was Azora Ahiroborn? It's not
5: said. It's Aemon only says at some point he became persuaded. So mm-hmm. whoever you want to have is that piece of information. Could be someone like the ghost of High Heart. Could be someone he met, maybe like Marwyn. Or maybe, maybe it's his own independent thought, but it's... Yeah. yeah. Or
0: maybe it's just like him becoming a dad and he's like, no, I think it's my kid who's real. You know, maybe it was just his emotions. It could right? be. Like,
1: we have yeah. no way of knowing. I mean, that'd be cool. That's... That's a cool way of, of doing yeah. it.
6: Well, there's also the prince that pro- was promised stuff that says it's gonna come from the line of whoever Rhaegar's like grandparents were. Yeah, true. Or whatever. So it has to be like somebody down there.
2: It has to be yeah. um, one of them. Mm-hmm. Going back to, you know, what Jeff was saying about how it's really difficult to understand, you know, there's so many different interpretations for these things. User Robface says, this is actually the point I believe George R. R. Martin is trying to make with every prophecy he allows multiple interpretations to take place, to allow people to come to their own conclusions and have them all be plausible. And he cites some some examples, such as like Varys' riddle that he poses to Tyrion about all those different answers about power, or when Varys talks about who killed Renly. I mean, we know who killed Renly, but like, whatever. And the old Gascari quote about prophecies being like a treacherous woman- and then even Tyrion saying that prophecy is like a half trained mule, so Yeah, that's
5: Definitely. that's sort of a um a running theme. And the thing with Rhaegar believing that Aegon could be the prince that was promised is it's not just that he thinks it, he believes it. And that's sort of the problem that he makes and that's kind of what his downfall is. Every single time he thinks he's right, and it like continually goes worse for him going forwards. Until he like accidentally falls into the right answer, which appears to be Jon.
1: Do we think that like the the dragon must have three heads plays a role in the Zorahai prophecy? Like did he come to a conclusion later on that it has to be not just one person but three people? The meta meta stuff that we talk about, about um, Zorahai being possibly several different characters at the same time, fulfilling different portions of the prophecy. Do you think that Rhaegar may have come to that point too where he's saying I have to have a third head of the dragon, which – most likely is is Jon Snow, right?
6: Well, he says it in the House of the Undying Prophecy on Shade of the Evening, which we'll get more into later, um, about, like, Danny sees somebody who resembles Rhaegar, and he's like, the dragon must have three heads, there must mm-hmm. be one more.
2: And technically, right. that's not the Azor high prophecy. That's the prince that was promised. No, it's not. Prophecy, which is a Valyrian prophecy versus the Rolorian prophecy, which I think has its roots in Ashai, right? Mm-hmm.
5: I believe that's right. Um, it's or hard to say. No. It seems to have gone global. Um, <laughs>
1: well, there's, there's the whole idea that Azor high, the prince that was promised, and the last hero are all the same archetype or, or the same person. Yeah. That are diffused across different cultures. I think that's a theory
5: in-universe, though. Is it a theory in-universe? I thought Eamon did.
3: Yeah, I thought Eamon had some kind of... In text conflation. Yeah.
1: Mm. Matt, you've been yeah. traveling a lot in, in Samuels <laughs> chapters where he's talking with, with Aemon, right?
5: Aemon is him and Rhaegar were thick as thieves. And Oof. what I think the three heads of the dragon was was originally people thought it meant a Targaryen because that's their crest. They're like, they're looking for a Targaryen. But a problem that we see throughout Aemon's life and Rhaegar's life is they keep making these guesses and then nothing changes. So they're like, oh, we must have gotten the prophecy wrong. And they try again. So, uh, through iteration, they eventually got to, well, maybe three heads of the dragon means three Targaryens instead of one. That's what I mean when they're throwing darts. Aemon's on the wall. Rhaegar's down here. Rhaegar's trying to make stuff happen down south and waiting to hear word back from Aemon if anything has changed. It keeps not happening. He keeps trying, experimenting more with his See, life. See,
0: this is why I like the interpretation that it's all actually, like, stupidly literal. That Danny and her dragons it are is. the actual, like three heads the dragon must have or whatever there are literally three dragons you know danny is born again and salt you know like it's all very literal with danny um they're gonna morph together and become mega (laughs) dragatron. they become a hydra there we go
6: or or they're all
2: gonna die and then they're gonna become just just like in the yugioh oh (laughs) Oh, drift compatible wow
6: oh my god
5: that just happened yeah that's actually what Eamon says um (laughs) <laughs> when he's close to death, he's like, How could I have been so stupid? It actually oh, was th- just three dragons. I thought you were
0: gonna say that Eamon said it was just like <laughs> Yu-Gi-Oh!.
5: <Yuki O. laughs> no, not that. <laughs> no, he said all, <laughs> on his deathbed when he's when he's letting out all the secrets from his life to Sam, he says mm. that. He's like, I was wrong the entire time. Yeah, that's true. And like the, the pain that, that that it brought him to be wrong that whole time.
3: Oh well, the and the other thing was earlier on when you were distinguishing between salt and smoke so much. Uh, the way you split them up into two really reminded me of the notion of Cartesian dualism. Oh.
0: As you may know. <laughs> as you may know. As per one of my favorite posts from the last month by user Cat on the Run, um, entitled On Magical Cripples and Cartesian Dualism with a Twist, Sam, you prescient son of a bitch. Um, <laughs> as you may know, Cartesian dualism refers to the notion... That mind and body are distinct and separable entities, and therefore one could exist
3: without the need of the other. As any child knows.
0: Yeah, as any any Joe Schmo, um, <laughs> any Joe Cartesian would know. Um, <laughs> that's my new. That's my new flair. <laughs> but yeah, so user Cat on the Run in this criminally under upvoted post points out that George R. R. Martin's universe in Song of Ice and Fire follows the notion of Cartesian dualism wargs and skin changers their minds can control animals bodies as in you know the minds and bodies are two dual separate things cat on the run breaks down some of what applying this idea of cartesian dualism would mean for a song of ice and fire and begins to at the end talk about some interesting conclusions about the others that they can skin change whites uh never minding their deadness while a regular skin changer would not be able to do that because they would die themselves they also make an interesting suggestion that whenever a person dies, if a second vessel or second life isn't found, then a person's consciousness leaves their body and fades away, rotting away, but that a weirwood tree might be sort of a, almost like a, a storage device, a mass storage device for minds and, and loose souls floating around. So anyway, I I just think this post, first off, it does something that I really like, which is just apply cool concepts from other disciplines and fields and... Things that aren't a Song of Ice and Fire to a Song of Ice and Fire, but also does have some nice tinfoil at the end. So yeah, what, what did you guys think?
3: Speaking on that not a Song of Ice and Fire point, one of the users in the comments, Pirate Robot Ninja of D, uh, brings mm. up <laughs> th- that that notion of uh, dualism between an entity persisting outside of a body is a recurring theme in George's work. And they point out the great A Song for Leah and the not mm. great flies. <laughs> As other examples of this. <laughs> uh, which is really neat to see.
2: Nightflyers, which just got greenlit to be a show from...
3: Sci-fi? I think it's sci-fi. 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 But with none, no George input because he has an exclusivity deal with right HBO.
1: I think my favorite part of the post was um, the point at the end where the others have the ability to do the same thing that uh, the skin changers can do, mm-hmm. whereas they can skin change uh, the dead. So it's kind of like a twisted version of what we see Bran doing with Ravens and stuff like yeah, that and then yeah. with uh, as a warg with uh, with Summer and uh, I think that's a that's a cool point and I think that's something that looks like it'll be explored um, I'm actually it's Song for Liar is on my list of, of books to read some now I'm interested more interested how to read that that's
3: fantastic quite short too just a novella
0: excellent yeah I can't pay attention to long books so. <laughs> a song of ice and fire <laughs> I've never read it So one of the other things this post points out Is the link between sick children And the magical abilities that they gain And they do point out the similarity To the trope of the disability superpower Where the person who is disabled in some way Is actually more powerful than everyone else Which has its ups and downs But no, so so Cat on the Run points out That Varamir and Jojen Reed Both fall into this category As, as well as Bran, obviously Of people who were they went through periods of illness when they were young and developed warging and skin-changing powers. Did
5: Euron? Was Euron sick too when he was young? Because some people have theorized that he got visited by the Three-Eyed Raven too. Right.
0: Yeah. All we know is is as a, a user, Vince, that was promised, points out in the comments, Euron said, when I was a boy I dreamt that I could fly, when I woke I couldn't, or so the maester said. Which doesn't mean he was sick, it just means he dreamed of flying, but um, there's at least... The hint, I guess, of a maester
3: being involved there. Tenuous, but it's there. Hmm. You know, the way you specify that user's name makes me cast my eyes suspiciously at the top of this post back to Cat on the Run and really wonder why a user named after a cat is spending so much time analyzing skin changing of dogs and die and some such. Hmm. Hmm.
2: Maybe they should be analyzing the cat of the canals chapter instead. That's true. Yeah. Or they should
5: be looking at um, the cat, what is it, Beleriand? That runs, or runs mm, around King's yeah. Landing. Mm. They do point out, actually, mm-hmm. Cat on the
0: Run does point out in this post, funny you should mention it, that um, cats are hard to control because cats are, I quote, awesome and smart. I mean, so we can't disagree with that. <laughs> I do sense some implicit bias in this post. Uh, so, 9 out of 10. Would have been a 10 out of 10, but for the <laughs> implicit bias. No, I'm just kidding. Cat on the Run, it was a great post. <laughs>
2: if you had been named dog on the run you would have gotten a 10 out of 10 yeah
0: oh my god in the
2: first book we're sort of introduced to the idea that the others are in fact like smarter or better than humans because they sort of just laugh Mm -hmm. at um waymar royce they're like oh that's silly human and as though he's just like a bug or you know can't even stand up to them but here he's talking about more proof um because it's not as it wasn't as clear in the show in earlier seasons that the others are in fact uh sentient and that they are mm. are conscious because in order for them to be able to skin change and mind control other things they'd have to they
3: have to be alive themselves they have to
5: have some, have, some yeah, sort
2: they'd of yeah they have to sapien. be alive they'd have to be yeah. conscious yeah yeah
3: right I think credit to the show though d d did use that visual motif of spirals made yeah. out of corpse parts to indicate they have some level of intelligence.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's it's like aliens.
5: And yeah. then the uh, and then the scene Pop where samples. you see them being made from a human. Yeah, that I, was, I think that that yeah. is where that kind of, That kind of shoved it in yeah. there.
6: Well, the first scene is just like, it's almost like a peace sign, which I find is kind of funny. <laughs> it just doesn't have like the split at the end. The spiral comes later after, during season two. And then they revisit the spiral again in season six with the Children of the Forest flashback yeah. stuff.
3: Perhaps there was some kind of artistic renaissance with the oh. White Walkers during season one and two. Yeah, Doesn't
6: Mance
0: call them always the artists? Mm.
5: That's right. Mm-hmm. Aha. Always the
0: artists. Is as, as approximately what <laughs> is... he sounded like. No They're... fan art. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Their art is too edgy for me.
0: It's too blue.
5: <laughs> and sort of going back too to, um, like, what the, how the others use this dualism thing, Like it seems like their main <laughs> <laughs> Cartesian dualism it's, in all these examples, uh, like even Vermeer who has like six or seven animals, he can only do one at a time, but we only see a handful of others and there's a huge amount of whites. It kind of implies that what they're doing is far beyond what any other race or person mm-hmm. in universe is doing with their working abilities. They, they've sort of been, ter- they're like a super weapon In a sense. Which Mm -hmm. is what the children said Mm -hmm. they were made for. They said they were made to essentially to exterminate humans. They're kind of like the Terminators, I guess.
0: Whoa. So Matt, do you have anything to bring to the table this month?
5: I do. And it actually has to do with Cartesian dualism too. Son of the Harpy.
2: (laughs) We should make that a new curse. Son of the Harpy.
5: The post I have for this this month is by Nymeria two, 2015 called Arya Stark, Faceless Men, and the Philosophy of Death. They start with the idea I wrote about a while ago where the Valyrian blood mages may have raised their slaves back to life over and over again as like an economic tool and like sort of like a punishment. Uh, we see from like uh, from Thoros of Myr uh, with Barrick, you can kind of bring them back as kind of as many times as you want. Their mind will break eventually, but the bodies will keep coming back. And that was sort of the end of my theory. What uh, Nymeria 2015 here has done is they've shown why the faceless men are interested in Aria, using that as an idea that since they came out of the Valyrian, the mines where this was a horrific thing, their goal according to the poster is that they're trying to end this from being a possibility. They want to go around and stop the children. They want to stop the others. They want to stop the blood mages from being able to resurrect people because from what they've seen in the Valyrian minds, it's hell. The people that are being brought back are not happy about it. They would be better off just sort of resting and going into the dark forever. For a lot of people it's hard to understand what Arya is doing and what the faceless men want her for. And it seems like they're training her to, to be an assassin, but for like what purpose? Why do they need a warg? Why do they want Arya? And this gives an interesting idea for why they're doing that.
0: I kind of see where they're coming from with this because it's true. The, the way the story is presented to Arya when she's told the origin story, it's it's presented as, yeah, death is a gift, right? And you, we do have all of these undead people starting to wander around. And it might add to the pathos of her character if maybe she's sent to take out like a certain undead lord commander of the night's watch for instance who happens to be her half brother john in case that wasn't obvious already there's plenty of room for her to go up against say like cersei and robert strong which would have some impact on her narrative or john or whoever these undead characters who are coming more to the fore in the story i think so it's a good way to get her back in the mix for sure well, it links in
5: nicely with the last post we were talking about where, where dualism appears to be a thing. Well, Cartesian this dualism. like the huge negative, the huge downsides of that being a thing because people could manipulate it. They could bring, keep bringing you like your body back against your will and you're just sort of stuck in an infinite loop. And it makes sense that there would be a faction in that world who, who would want to end that if they've been under the wheel of that
0: thing for so long. They might want to break the wheel. Um they would, much like Daenerys. It's a really
3: interesting point. <laughs> Jesus. Wow.
2: Yeah. Speaking, speaking of Jesus, um speaking Would Arya have been sent, sent like a good to segue? assassinate <laughs> G-
0: Never mind. It
2: just seems like a good segue and <laughs> I like I like the way that this post likens Arya to an angel of death. Yeah um some of the terminology that they use and it and it makes sense you know as a servant of the many-faced god one might be associated with some of that religious imagery so i thought that was pretty cool
0: yeah totally and that they had this whole great section at the end um life and death the balance of nature i think was the title of the section that just touches on like mm-hmm. they're like okay the, you know the egyptians buddhism Sumerian, you know they just go through all these historical examples of things that are relevant um, which again is something I like—that people bring in their outside knowledge and apply it like that.
3: Between the Cortesian jewels and post, and this post about the balance of life and death, the subs really encouraging everyone to take stock of their own lives uh, and the role of death in them lately.
0: Absolutely, I don't even
1: know. What have the hell? Kind of dark.
2: What?
3: Wow. Real dark. <laughs> is that a pun, or are you just being
5: depressed?
2: I, I think. I think. <laughs> S- S- are you okay? We ask this like every. Are you okay?
3: I'm just enjoying the sub <laughs>
6: I've got mad, mad tinfoil. I got fun tinfoil. Okay. Okay. So, if the faceless men are supposed to be giving the gift and Tyrion is supposed to be the gift, then is Tyrion going to turn to the dark side and become like the angel of death, the villain of the story? Wow. (laughs) Nobody? Nobody? I don't
2: understand. How is Tyrion giving the gift? He
6: walked up and he's like, I am the gift in the show. I am. Oh, the gift. I am the oh, gift. It's actually pronounced oh, yeah. "gift." I am the gif. Gift. Uh, <laughs> high quality gif. <laughs> I the gif. I am
3: your high quality gif, Danny. You know what is a good Tyrion gift in real life? The wit and wisdom of Tyrion Lannister. <laughs> Perfect.
0: Oh, only nineteen ninety nine on 99 <laughs> yeah. it's amazing. Bag of coal. This podcast sponsored by uh, Blue Apron. <laughs>
2: but also, uh, bringing it back to the religious imagery of angels of yeah. death etc there's that whole chapter where she goes by the name mercy and there is also an angel of mercy whose name wait who wants to guess what his name is you should Sam. know this you uh, should know this Cago michael corpse
1: killer Kago corpse killer there's aura. It,
2: it's my it's michael it's michael, michael. It's, michael. Oh. it's michael hey
0: oh <laughs> wow All right saint michael the Arya angel am i am i right that was a joke for all my
6: so many puns. I think the angel of mercy is named Jeff because he saved a person from a ban earlier this
0: week. Oh, <laughs> that's a little bit of a little bit of background <laughs> knowledge for you listeners out there. What? <laughs> um, guys do you, did we fail? Who did we
2: Did we fail this post?
0: Uh, I'm still going on this post. Did we what? Did we fail this post? <laughs> I think this post failed us. Good lord! In the comments, um, uh, user Putanesca 621 Um, Asks the obvious question that I think we're all thinking. Does this include Lady Stoneheart in terms of Arya killing the undead? Yes, because that could also be as I was talking about Jon Snow and Cersei seems like a possibility right an avenue for Arya
6: I was thinking about this earlier this week. We were talking about uh, expanding a cut segment from last episode about resurrection Mm. Uh and I think it's really great if Arya ends up being the one to kill Stoneheart. I know you Sammy, you're shaking your head, but I'm not gonna get into it now. But this is this is great. <laughs> Trust me. It's freaking great. And it's gonna you're gonna you're gonna love it, babe. Just just wait.
0: I'll take your word for it.
2: Everyone stay tuned for next month, August. We're planning to do the rotating topic about resurrection. It's
0: beautiful. Yeah.
2: This idea could totally die, but it's coming. Back. We're gonna
6: bring it back if it does.
2: We're bringing sexy back.
6: You're going to like the way you look. I guarantee it.
0: <laughs> um, who's up next? Aaron, you've you talked a lot of shit. No, I'm just kidding. Aaron, do you have any, uh, Aaron, do you have any posts you want to throw on the table this, this month?
6: I do, and it's called, I Would Bet Money Shade of the Evening Tree Petrifies. It's some fresher tinfoil. We haven't had uh, that much tinfoil in a while. It's an explanation for something that is currently unexplained.
0: I'm pretty sure this post was by uh, Crowfood's daughter.
6: It could Um... be. It could be. We really don't know, but it could be. So the post starts out bringing up some stuff that's been out here for quite a long time, that Shade of the Evening trees and werewoods are the exact opposite of each Mm. other. So werewood trees, you all know they grow in Westeros, and they're very old, and they lead to like visions into the past. Then you have Shade of the Evening trees, which are introduced over in Karth that the warlocks use, and they produce a different Mm -hmm. type of dream. They're similar in certain ways and very much different in others. Werewoods are white with red leaves. Shade of the evening trees are black with blue leaves. Mm. Both trees have different kinds of sap, which give different types of dreams. White and red werewood paste that's creamy and milky. And then you have shade of the evening, which is like black and inky. And the two dreams are a bit different. You have the dreams of the Greenseer through the Werewoods, which are very clear and precise. And then you have the dreams of Shade of the Evening, which are all like contorted and metaphorical. It's really like some kind of trippy drug trip where everything's like very surreal. Some of the things like Danny, when she's on it, she sees Rago as if he was some sort of conqueror, but he's deceased at this point and some very weird stuff that it's hard to make out exactly what she's looking at. But when you look at Bran, in all of his dreams, they're all very clear and precise, and he can see directly back into the past at certain points.
2: Going off the shade of the evening stuff, A, it's the spice from Dune. B, undying scenes for the large part seem literal, but they're also mixed with symbolic. And in The Forsaken, almost all the visions we get through Aaron Greyjoy, are symbolic.
6: What I really liked about this post is nobody has brought this up before that despite the parallels between what a weirwood tree is and a shade of the evening tree, we know that weirwood trees end up petrifying into like a stone element. And some people mm. say that the the Naga's bones over on Old Wick are actually yes. petrified weirwoods from like an ancient ship. That had like beached over there and carried the Ironborn to that location. The ribs that are sticking up aren't like some great sea beast, but like part of the ship. And so yes. that's the theory. But there are also um, general like weirwood stone, ancient trees and stuff around. And so this post was saying like, hey, if this would happen to shade the evening trees, then it would petrify into blackstone.
2: Ah. But like, what do you think about Preston Jacobs? Brings up a good point. Tree petrification takes millions of years, not thousands. So.
6: Well, I think you just said it. Because if werewood trees take millions of years or thousands of years, as is said in A Feast for Crows about the blackwood tree, then shade of the evening trees would not. It would be over really quickly. The trees would, like, get spent after a short period of time. I don't necessarily agree that it turns into black stone. Because, again, we're, tr- we're going with the opposites here. And so that doesn't explain certain other things, because some people brought up in the comments the idea that it turns into the oily black stone. But that doesn't really necessarily make sense, because then why would it be oily? Mm -hmm. If you're going with the polar opposites and everything of a weirwood tree is the opposite of a shade of the evening tree, then you would expect it not to petrify. It It should like melt. The tree should melt or do something very strange. And if that happens, it could like go into the ground and like mix with other stone and then become like shale of the evening. Wow. (laughs) And then you have a reason for the oily black stone. And it's not that interesting on its own. But if you figure in that it has properties of like a decayed and deceased shade of the evening tree that is liquefied. It can help explain certain things in the story. It doesn't really change that much, but it would make it a bit more interesting and a bit more magical in the Song of Ice and Fire sense. And that's that at the base of the High Tower in Old Town, there's oily black stone. And in the story... Leighton Hightower, the lord of the second most powerful house in the Reach, he's holed up there, and we have no idea, like, why he's there. And we have this idea that he's, like, sitting at the top of the Hightower, and he's reading all these mysterious books. But I think it would be a bit more creepy and eerie if Sam, like opened up the door to the high tower, and he walked in there to go find Leighton and he discovers he's like actually at the base and his hands are like all oily and black because he's been sitting there for years as like a drug addict just rubbing the stone like getting all these crazy dreams.
3: Sometimes you do just gotta rub the stone. Oh boy.
6: And that would also fit in with something earlier on. Somebody in the book hypothesized maybe he'll raise an army from the deeps. So I don't know. Maybe he's gaining magical properties because he's absolutely nuts, and this is a way that you know you can tie it all together. Excellent. Maybe Euron wants to go there so he can drink shade the evening and rub the stone. Got to rub that stone out. Pay pay his respects to the
0: stone.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's a real. It's rock hard.
0: I feel like you set this whole thing up just to make the shale of the evening. No, I
6: really liked it. I thought that it, does it change anything in the story? No. Is it a clear and I think logical explanation for something that exists that is currently unexplained? Yeah. And it's not like tinfoil that's doing like a crazy twist. It's just explaining something. Mm. I think this post fits in just fine, because we're talking about the mind and body, uh, Cartesian dualism, but we're talking about also about the opposites of the mind and body, so it's like Cartesian quadrism.
0: Yes, we
6: are. (laughs) I think it's good tinfoil in these dark, trying tinfoil times, where everything seems like it's subtle nuance. (laughs) Absolutely.
0: I feel like the Shade of the Evening trees, they show up in A Clash of Kings, and then you, you kind of expect to see these black trees with blue, like this... This it seems important is mm-hmm. what I'm saying, and they never pop up again. So it would make sense if this was somehow if they were the oily black stone, or at least somehow popping up elsewhere in the world, and we just didn't realize it yet. Because they seem important, right? It seems like if the polar opposite of a weirwood, yeah, you know, if a weirwood's that important, then it should be equally important for the polar opposite, right? Um.
2: The mm. weirwood lets you see into the past. Or did the evening lets you see into the future. Oh, oh my gosh.
1: And the past, too.
6: Well, Shade of the Evening is like, it it can torch visions and stuff.
5: What color dreams would the Shade of the Evening give you? Purple dreams?
2: But, like, the Weirwood Pace. The weirwood the where paste lets you see into the past, and the green dreams let you see into the future, but the paste doesn't necessarily... Well,
6: weirwood paste binds you to the Werewood tree. Shade of the Evening is more like a mobile device. Again, it's like the opposite. You can have these dreams anywhere, but if you're in the Werewood network, you're stuck in, like, one place.
5: Going back to the post, I think um, there's also some proof of this in the House of the Undying, where, like, it's the Blue Heart and the Undying, are like, they appear to be preserved by this stuff. Maybe when a human drinks it, they essentially... Eventually turned to like stone with a consciousness, more like or less. Like Medusa. Oh, yeah, something like that. Like, because that's what it seems like it's going. Well, the undying move,
6: but not really. Isn't that? I can't. I can never tell if that's in Danny's head or not. It's really hard to tell because she and her point of view are on the drug at the time.
0: Yeah.
2: They they move to her.
6: But is that part of her thing?
2: No, they definitely move to her because when she comes to, they're like trying to eat yeah, her. Yeah,
6: that's. that's uh, okay. take on
5: it.
2: They move enough to try to eat her.
6: Yeah. Or maybe they're just going to give her a hug and she's having a bad trip.
2: Also possible. Um, Jeff, do you have any thoughts? You haven't said anything in a long time.
1: I, I really don't have a lot of thoughts about this post because this isn't really in my wheelhouse necessarily and things I think about about A Song of Western Fire, but it's, <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, I like the connection, the possible connection between a hot take. Shave the Evening and, and Weirwood Trees, and that's really all I can say about it.
0: Jeff, Jeff is just a fascinated bystander in this.
1: <laughs> oh, my God. Where have we seen trees
6: melting? because that's a very strange, like, thing to even talk about. And Eliana, you brought up time. There's that famous painting of the tree that has, like, the melting clocks in it and stuff.
2: So- Salvador Dali. Um, Salvador Dali.
0: Persistence
6: from- of time. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
6: Yeah. So, like, there's your inspiration. Drugs. <laughs> yeah, drugs. <laughs> I've got another hot take for it.
5: In Essos, there's actually a native population of... Uh, people that are sort of like children of the forest they're from the kingdom of Ithqevron they're called the woodwalkers yeah. and they walk around haunted forests the dothraki are too scared to go nearby and they carve faces into the trees maybe the maybe these are like regional versions of the weirwood and mm. while the ones in Westeros tend to white ones the ones in Essos <coughs> tend to the black trees and they're just and it's just like they got
6: separated a while ago or something like that.
2: Shade of the Evening is the Alolan Marowak.
6: What? (laughs) Two different paths formed in a yellow wood,
1: and I took (laughs) the tree less
0: traveled. What what poet was that, Jeff? I'm
1: going to live that shit down.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Who wrote that? I believe that was
5: Lord Byron. Karth used to be a much bigger place. They apparently used to have trees and everything. It's possible they cut down all the shade evening trees throughout most of Essos fighting those children of the forest in the long past.
2: The Undying are in a tower and they go up, whereas the Weirwood and Bloodraven are underground.
0: Although actually the the House of the Undying in the book is just a low building. Yeah. Oh, is it? Yeah. Although she she does go upstairs the, in, the, oh. in the low building, so it's you know They go sideways. Right. Yeah.
5: that's
2: the point that's why it's magic it's a low
5: building they changed that for the show
2: that's why it's magic
5: but it's a, the stairs are impossible she always goes up to the right and it's like a one-story building it's impossible
0: <laughs> i think the real stairs were the friends she made along the way
5: you mean the undying who she killed <laughs>
0: <laughs> so sam what uh what post do you have to bring us this month mm.
3: Well, it's another post so transformative it makes you feel like you're on Shade of the Evening. (laughs) By the always articulate (laughs) Lemon Peely, it's titled, Let's Talk About Unreliable Narrators. In this post, Lemon Peely does a great examination of the third person limited omniscient type of viewpoints that George uses in the series. And they look at the level of unreliable narration George uses in these viewpoints. And they use examples like Arya misremembering the name of Joffrey's sword, child characters not fully complementing what they're witnessing, like when Bran thought the Lannister siblings were wrestling, uh, non-Dornish characters viewing Dawn in stereotypical ways. And then when we get the actual Dornish viewpoints, those mm. stereotypes falling apart as we realize the complexities of the actual culture and things like Arya's chapters in the books four and five, where she starts to really subsume herself into these different identities and the narratives and the titles of the chapters, not just being Arya anymore, reflect that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But with all that said, they then frame this all in the perspective of there's a great difference between unreliable narration and the sense of viewing the world through this is their words a specific set of biases and conceptions that have been ingrained in you since birth, and then they contrast that to actively lying to yourself, as some theory crafters might do when making their theories, thinking a character is wholesale deceiving themselves and there's information George is completely hiding away from this in Mm -hmm. some way Mm -hmm. and Lemon Peely kind of says that's not really the way George is telling his stories and that while there's unreliable narration there's no flat-out lies from George it's just how the characters themselves perceive the world through their context and then the fact we have multiple point of views allows us to piece together what's real and what's consistent anyway. I agree so much with Lemon Peely in this post
0: because yeah I think people do take the unreliable narrator idea and just completely misapply it. To say, oh well, this person uh, just could have been hallucinating the whole time. There's a great post from several months ago that no one else seems to like as much as I do, which I think was partially satirical, but suggested that the dragons could just be hallucinations because only Daenerys and <laughs> Quentin have seen them. Um, which I'll send you it. It's, it's great. <laughs> you did it's a th- great post. I thought
1: we featured. We it. wanted
0: to, and by we, I mean me. But that's the taking the unreliable narrator to its illogical, ridiculous extreme, where to a certain extent, you have to take some things at face value that George R. R. Martin, as the author, is presenting to us through this through this character. I also, I, I gotta say, I really liked in this post how they talk about Tyrion and his chain at the Blackwater, and how mm. it is more ambiguous than just black and white, oh, Tyrion, saved the day, and no one gives him credit. It's like, yeah, Tyrion did a good job, but... He didn't single-handedly save the day. He's not the sole savior of King's Landing that he kind of thinks of himself as. Eventually,
1: I mean, he was about to—they were about to lose the battle of of the Blackwater, and if Tywin and the Tyrells hadn't showed up, exactly, yeah, yeah. And they were still going to lose regardless. I mean, like even even Tyrion's the chain itself—it created the bridge so that Stannis' troops could cross the Blackwater Rush and then start hitting the, the gates of King's Landing. So it had the second-order effect of creating the the ability for Stannis to actually win the battle because he had an ability to cross his troops into the, uh, the other side of the Blackwater.
0: That's a great point. Yeah, exactly.
2: I think that to some extent we're supposed to interpret it as at least somewhat heroic because it's framed against one of Sansa's chapters, right? Where she sees Lancel scolding Cersei for taking Joffrey off the battlefield mm. and is saying to Cersei, he's like, You can't take Joffrey off the battlefield. He's our leader, he's our king. If people see that he's not there, they're all going to lose morale and they're all going to be like, well, if he's not fighting, why should we? And so Tyrion seeing that he's like one of the leaders in terms of like being um, a nobleman and a Lannister in leading that charge and going to battle with everyone sort of gets portrayed heroically in that sense.
6: Yeah, like if you're playing Total War medieval warfare like you can't take your commander off the battlefield you lose all
0: your morale and all your troops uh route exactly i think that's what george r R. martin based that off of
6: jeff we still have to play i challenged you a long time ago to play in uh i'm down war we have always down to play we shouldn't live
1: it on twitch (laughs) do it you should do it. it it'll be great we could bring uh we could bring ollie into cuz oh, he plays. I did not know that.
3: Do uh, you mean the boy yeah. from uh, from the castle black? <laughs> yes. The greatest archer in the north. He's come back. Uh, Great Dave Hills resurrected him uh, the best story move the show could do. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, nah, Ali is one of our fellow mods. That's his name. Yeah. Yes. One of the cool things though is that there are legitimate uh, unreliable narrators in, in a Song of Ice and Fire, yes. one of them being Sansa and and the Unkiss. With uh, with Sandra Kilgain, also featured in the Battle of the Blackwater. George has said, has put this specifically as a moment of unreliable narration, which to me implies that it didn't happen anywhere besides Sansa's head, but it does have an impact on Sansa's characterization as she's pushed forward through a storm of swords and into a feast for crows and the winds of winter. Because she does dwell on that moment for sure, multiple yeah. times as the narrative pushes forward.
2: And Lemon Peely does. Say that, like her very first line is so George R. R. Martin has confirmed, and the word confirmed is highlighted as that link to Sansa misremembering what is now colloquially called the unkiss by fans. Um, So, George R. R. Martin has confirmed that his characters are unreliable narrators. As, like Sam was saying, they might misremember things in their memory, like looking back on things, as science has shown that the more we replay a memory, And the more we think about it and revisit it, mm-hmm. the more we distort that memory. But along with that, as they say, say, the way Tyrion's biases about Shay cause him to misinterpret things, but that the actual events that happen and when they happen and are trustworthy and accurate.
1: Yeah. Right. And they're, they're trustworthy and accurate to the character. Tyrion believes that Shay loves him. Even though it's not accurate, it's an inaccurate.
2: What they're saying is that Shay's actions and the way she's actually acting, the things that we see Shay do, the things we see Shay say, are accurate. It's Tyrion's interpretations right, yeah. that are like
3: inaccurate. Sansa misremembers, but the actual scene where the Uncas would have happened, we don't get the Uncas described to us, and then George later laughing, going, "Hey, that never happened."
0: Right. Exactly. <laughs> we see what really happened, and then mm-hmm. it's up to characters to misinterpret Be- that later on but but the actual like real-time play-by-play of events that we get is at, at least accurate up to the character's interpretation. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's uh, what Lemon Peely's really getting at, is like there's all this memory and all that kind of stuff that all falls apart, but ultimately, when we're shown on the page that something is happening, something different is not happening. When Quentin is set on fire, mm-hmm. Quentin is not not set on fire. You know what I mean?
6: <laughs> is he dead? Right, right. Read Quentin's death <laughs> until you
5: like it. <laughs> uh, lemon oh. Peely also brings up one of the most hotly debated examples of this. It's Danny with the house at the red door and the lemon tree. Oh. Where we never actually see that happen live. She's only remembering things from many years ago. And she's replaying it with her mind. Nobody else has any confirmation of any of these details being correct. It's just her. And it's, it's, an, it's a question that... He raises with Sansa that you can apply here. It's like, what is Danny actually remembering? Is this like multiple
3: places? That kind of thing. Kind of ties into uh, Hall like we talked in the last episode, and Robert's Rebellion in general, in that since George isn't doing any actual prequel, it's all memory. So it's all mm-hmm. susceptible to the unreliable narration of characters like Barristan and John Connington recalling it. Yeah. Yeah, totally.
0: There's a user in the thread who makes a great point that there are lies of omission in the series- Ned not thinking about john's parentage that's not ned thinking oh yes i remember when i fathered ned on this person and then that's just a lie it's ned's point of view just not touching specifically on the issue of john's parentage fact by fact mm. so there are those kind of lies by omission in the point of view but again that's all memory stuff it's not real-time live events yeah. Live, yeah, yeah. exactly
1: the other omission thing also is uh, Tyrion not thinking about the chain in in a way that that George wrote it to so kind of obscure what, what Tyrion is, is doing in building the great chain that, that stretches across Blackwater mm, Bay. Yeah. Um, it's kind of, it's a weird way, like when you look at it from, in retrospect and after doing a couple of rereads, you look and you're like, you would think that Tyrion in his own mind would have been thinking about this chain that was going to stretch across Blackwater Bay and was going to keep Stannis' ships in, but he wanted to maintain um, both the narrative tension and the surprise factor that comes when hmm. the chain comes forward. But it does; it is kind of a weird way that George does it. I don't mind it necessarily because it, it is a cool reveal right. yeah. in The Clash of Kings when the chain doesn't go up at all until after the, the wildfire explodes and it traps most of Stannis's fleet inside Blackwater Bay. Totally.
0: And and that does he does yeah. do that a lot with That's narrative true. tension where it, it, it's like the rule of writing, right? If you ever spell out a plan on the page for the characters, that plan has to go wrong. And if you don't see a plan spelled out on the page and you just see it play out in real time, it's gonna go pretty well for the characters. I mean that Mm -hmm. is fairly true, like with Theon's Escape from a Dance with Dragons with the Spearwives. I mean he and Jane do end up jumping off the wall and what we get is like him sitting down with the Spearwives and going, Okay, here's the plan and then we cut to the plan in action. So yeah, (laughs) there's that there's that element of narrative tension, but that's not really an unreliable narrator. I think some people might get the two confused. No.
6: Hey, Eliana, what would have been better than Tyrion just making one chain on the Blackwater?
2: It, I, I don't know. I feel like just one chain isn't enough. <laughs> one yeah.
6: chain's pretty good.
2: Maybe, maybe he needed <laughs> two chains. Oh, oh my
5: God.
0: <laughs> are we allowed to put in clips?
5: Thank you, Aaron.
2: I, no, setting me up. Okay. I think
5: maybe the perfect example of what we're talking about is... A line that a lot of people have based an entire huge theory about and it's Barristan remembering Hall and Ashara Dane mm. and there's the line where he says and she looked to Stark and then he gets interrupted and you don't know which Stark you don't know if his and what we're talking about with Tyrion and Shea. It's his interpretation. We don't really know what he saw. We don't know which Stark he's talking. It's you know, Liana. A shark could have been talking to Benjen or Lyanna. Yes.
2: It's Lyanna.
5: It's it's Lyanna. It's <laughs> yeah. definitely Lyanna. Yes. There's unreliable memory there. There's also interpretation by Barristan. And there's just the length. It was like 15 years ago. Is his memory of that event even correct anymore? It's re- It's like a perfect storm of all these ideas in one. That's
0: cool. Yeah. A perfect storm of swords. Let's uh, uh What's the Dance with Dragons.
1: <laughs>
0: Finally, let's have uh our good friend Jeff. What what do you have to bring to the table today?
1: So my post is
2: Jeff is our friend.
1: Uh, well, our quote-unquote really wanted to call me that. Jeff, <laughs> Jeff exists I'm there, I'm there. So the post that I chose for this month is a simple explanation why showdorn was so bad. Oh. And it's Three lines. The post is, I think we can all agree that Dorne in the show is awful. Agree? Everybody agrees with that, We're all nodding, yeah. Everyone. There's a simple reason why the Dorne storyline from the books was scrapped, though. It's intrinsically intertwined with the Fagon storyline. Once the decision was made not to include Aegon, Dorne had to be overhauled. And since Dorne couldn't be taken out completely because of Oberyn and Marcella, you get what you get for better or worse. So this post I liked because it's, it's super short, but I think it really speaks to a big portion of why Dorne fails. Dorne fails at a narrative level in the book, er, rather in the show, because you don't have the the Dorne Martell, should I or should I not support Aegon, which comes up in The Winds of Winter, where he ends up sending Arianne north mm-hmm. to, the, to the Stormlands to try and see if Aegon is, is legit or not. But at the same time, he also has the Quentin plot in mind as well, where he's sending Quentin after Daenerys Targaryen to bring her back to Westeros, land in Dorne, and then um, get his vengeance on the Iron Throne. Without Aegon there and that tension between whether Dorne is going to support his son or his daughter, because by the end of A Dance of Dragons and into the, early into the Winds of Winter, he has no idea that Quentin has died which he has.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Dead. Which he has. Absolutely has. Has died. He's mm-hmm. so totally dead. But he doesn't know that. He does he has no idea that Quentin is dead and that's factors in to the consideration cuz he is thinking about that as he dispatches Arianne up to the up to the Stormlands because if Arianne comes back and says we should support this dragon Doran Martell is going to have a hell of a choice thinking, well, my son is still out there. If I support Aegon I'm basically setting my son aside as king of Westeros and putting my daughter up as the queen of Westeros. But he also has this thing where he starts to think that his son might be dead. Without that sort of narrative impulse behind the work, Dorne really doesn't work. And, and I sort of understand why George and both um, Brian Cogman, who I believe is the person who wanted Dorne to be in the show, wanted Dorn to be in the show. You had to see the, the fallout and the ramifications of the death of Oberyn Martell. You can't have this massive character come onto the page and then sunset at the end of season four and not see the outcome or what ends up happening there. But it does actually not work without Aegon in in the mix, if that makes sense. Well, in some ways, you could do
6: it in a different fashion. Like, it's not necessarily that Dorne has to be bad because Aegon is gone, but it gets much more difficult to create a new story that fits in that what they went with is just like buddy comedy adventure story. It didn't elevate it in a way that made up for the lack of ha- not having Aegon.
3: Would you all agree it was a matter of you want the fake Aegon, but you need the buddy comedy?
2: <laughs> what, if, okay, what if they had gotten around, if people thought that the Fagon thing was too complicated, suddenly bringing in another character, etc., would you have agreed to a change where maybe Tristane played fake Aegon as opposed to bringing in a whole young Griff? Yes.
0: yes,
1: yes, yes. I think that would work. That would have worked in in the show's context. But the other thing that's that's also running in the narrative too is this whole concept that Doran's need for vengeance is really misguided. By cutting out that portion too. Which does factor in with the Aegon storyline because in A Dance with Dragons, Dora Martell dispatches the Sand Snakes out to various tasks. He sends Nymeria and um, Tyene. He sends Nymeria and Tyene up to King's Landing and tells them, you know, uh, word my count things that will need to be done and I will send you word. And he sends Obara after Darkstar. And then you have Ilaria there who was witness to Oberyn Martell's death, who has suffered a lot saying, why are we, like, all these people that you wanted vengeance against are dead, and that you're still pursuing this vengeance on people that are already dead, so you're, you're pursuing it against the people who are of only tertiary culpability, if any at all, in the death of Elia Martel and her children back in, in Robert's Rebellion. That dynamic was also cut out from the show, and that really, really kind of, it soured me on the show, for sure, or the show's Treatment of Dorne. It's definitely one of the the
6: larger moments in the books that shows an anti-revenge perspective, which I think the show is sorely lacking and went with the exact opposite.
3: Absolutely. So you didn't like the message weak men will never rule Dawn again? Oh my god. <laughs> it's I think that's just so fascinating, the the quick turn. One of the things that I was thinking of was
6: like it would be neat if Marcelo was like picking through Tristan's hair or something and she discovered like that he had uh, blonde roots or something and like that was like the kind of the reveal oh, she- of like hey this person isn't really supposed to be the person that he's supposed to be because like Dorne had been dyeing his hair for so long to keep him like hidden or something Tristan got captured and he had on like the Queenmaker plot and or whatever they would have done in the show because like Tristan would have been the instigator of it and so he would have been locked away and his hair wouldn't have been continuously mm-hmm. dyed. And I think there, that would have been a better way to tie in like, hey, here's another Targaryen, fake Targaryen like, plot of things.
3: So you wanted Doran to die a different way. <laughs> nice. <laughs> oh, wow.
2: There was a, a really interesting point that this user, I don't know if it's 68 Cra 68 or C-R-A-68, well, points out.
4: Crawl!
2: Crawl! So there's this yeah. really great point that user sixty eight points out in this King. in this post. Um, and they Corn. talk about how um Alexander Siddig, um who plays Doran Martell, actually claims that hit that his character had a far bigger role, and he was surprised when those scenes weren't shot, and that the entire focus of the storyline went to Ilaria and the Sand Snakes. Yeah, so he like. Yeah, Sidiak apparently apparently confirmed in some interviews that there were massive rewrites behind the scenes that made no sense, Um, as Craw 68 says, (laughs) the couple of sources. And apparently he was like paid for four episodes, but did a brief appearance in one.
6: It's pretty easy to see that they did not know that he was cast yet for this role when it was written, because he is so minor in that storyline. And so it's like when they got the opportunity to sign him up that they were just like okay let, let's get them for multiple seasons just in case and it turns out well they weren't going to use those extra episodes yeah perhaps
2: that was like the original vision for of why Cogman pushed so hard to continue including um during the show Sam do you have an eye roll for me or like
6: since he died so quick maybe this time you could say Alexander Siddig got the quickening
2: Sorry,
6: what? DS9 joke, wow. nobody gets it. Okay. Oh my God. <laughs> Somebody out there listening is going to get it. Swing and a miss. It's Ooh. Gonna be awesome. They'll laugh
1: really Someone hard, too. Someone out
6: really
4: there is chortling really hard right
6: now. I wish
5: you guys could have seen the blank faces across our <laughs> Skype call as that went out.
0: Anyway, I just I think it's fascinating, this the whole thing where <laughs> Dorne just completely transforms between season five and season six because- Or or, uh, honestly, the season five, episode 10 seems to be different from the rest of Dorne season five. Like the writer's room on Dorne must have just been (laughs) non-existent. I I don't know. I I would pay good money to watch live footage of the writer's room unless it was just an (laughs) empty room.
2: I would watch. I would watch the room. We'll watch the room.
0: <laughs> it was. A, it was a Markov chain. We would bot. Watch the room over the writer's room of Storm.
2: No, I just. It's.
0: it's wow. So, I don't know. It's. It's so baffling because it really does seem like there must have been all these conversations that resulted in just really bad execution.
6: Well, it's also because they didn't have the budget to allocate mm. to it and they weren't really sure at this yeah. point because this was the first time they were
0: shooting in Spain and they weren't really sure and that is why it was a Dumb decision to go to the Alcazar Palace in Spain for Dorne. They should have just had a soundstage and allocated yeah. more budget to the other yeah. elements of the story because they spent a well, ton well, of it. money on that national They park,
1: seem so impressed with it though. It came to nothing. It was basically. beautiful. I mean the the palace was beautiful
0: Oh well, yeah, 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 it was beautiful for sure.
1: That was that was probably the choreography, of the fight there, wasn't
6: really impacted the training that they had for the fight and the scenes. And it's like, well, if you can have these right. soup scenes and these like, hey, you're inside of a cell sets, and and they are shooting all the outdoor stuff as well in Northern Ireland. That's why it looks so like grassy and. Yeah. Sleeping Bear Dunes, and there's like no sand. Yet you have these people who have these sigils of suns on their chest, and like sandy outfits of yellow. And here they are in like grassland. It didn't. It
0: doesn't mesh.
3: It's unreliable narration. They should have just gone to a beach <laughs> somewhere.
0: The really, I, the two Dorns is a great example of the sort of Cartesian dualism of the show and the books. Oh I think.
5: <laughs> <laughs> you guys are real reaching. Oh yes. One ward, the other. Um, I had one question for this post. Uh, the the user Fire and Salty makes the point that it's Aegon missing that is that crushes it. But if you had a choice between Aegon, Quentin, and Ariane, and you could have one of those plots back in the show,
1: know. which one would you want? I would say Quentin. I think Quentin makes the most sense because. You, I mean, I, I guess the show opted for the route that Dorn and Daenerys will ally in season seven. It seems like, or at the end of season six, even. Mm-hmm. But I like the dynamic better. Of uh, what I really thought when season five kicked off was that tristain since there weren't, we knew that Quentin wasn't going to come, and I, I read the theory that uh, mm-hmm. tristain was was secret was secret, secret Aegon didn't buy it. Secret Aegon. Uh, didn't really buy it, but I, I liked it. A-gon but I thought man. I thought that Doran Martell was going to dispatch, uh, Tristain out to to Marine to to try and grab Daenerys and bring mm. her back, and that would have been an interesting dynamic mm. that would have captured some of what the books were, are going for with the Dorn Daenerys conflict that looks like it's going to rear its ugly head um, in in Windsor or in Dream. Um, that's interesting to me. Don't know. Th- I mean, I really like Arianne's point-of-view character and her art. I'm arc.
2: surprised they yeah. didn't bring in Ariane.
1: Arianne's is great. Marine in season five and six
6: is its whole other story, and you can do it without having Quentin there. I think the what I would be looking for is, like, what can you do to help pick up Dorne? And the Aegon plot seems like it's a whole lot of stuff to get into for the rest of the show where it would take a whole other season to do all that. Um, but I think if you have Ariane there in Dorne, it helps elevate that story enough to make it work within the context of season five and season six. So Ariane would be my pick of which one I would most like to have back. I think it's a good assist in the story that is the weakest.
0: Yes, yeah, as, as much as I love Quentin. Yeah.
2: Building off the way HBO like established Game of Thrones at the beginning as like tits and dragons and blood. Like, How did they not include Ariane? She was just like, her storyline was made for hbo yeah Yeah, this is
5: why not she's
2: busty she like has and like i mean
5: she is yeah she's hbo i
2: think she had like an interesting storyline and plus on top of all that like she also has that storyline where there would be blood and violence because of her actions i i just can't believe that yeah of all the characters she was cut
0: you could literally sum up her story with tits and dragons. Like, that's yeah. <laughs> most of her plot so far is tits and then going to Aegon.
1: You know, my really hot take about Dorne in, in the show is is that they should have just abandoned it altogether. If they weren't going to do Aegon, if they weren't going to do Arianne, if they weren't going to do Quentin, if they weren't going to do a foil to the Sand Snakes being Alaria, then they should have just dropped Dorne altogether and focused on um, the Iron Islands and pushed the King's Moot back to season five and then had that whole sequence drive the plot forward. So you have Euron introduced more earlier, so he becomes a more pivotal character. Yeah. Um, but that's that's really my mm-hmm. take on it.
6: That's a whole nother bag
1: of
5: <laughs> snakes. Oh! Oh, my God! A, whole- a Part of the reason the Dorne plot doesn't make sense is there's, like, no future in it for Duran. Without Arian, without Quentin, without Aegon as, like, somebody to ally with, it's, like, he's just going crazy with revenge with, like, no long game, and that's a big part of Duran. He's trying to win, he's not
3: just trying to kill everybody.
5: They removed his win conditions, yeah, without essentially.
3: it. Duran just seems hungry like a wolf.
2: Um, as a side note, Bad my sand. partner can hear me talking about this, and he just sent me a chat that says, Hiss with me, sisters. <laughs> that's that's what the, that's included in this.
0: Man, he's great. <laughs> that guy, say hi to Obi Wan. That about wraps it up for our subreddit highlights of the last month or so. Um, Now, with the show Coming Down the Pike, we wanted to spend some time talking about some specific aspects of the show that Game of Thrones is unique in or does better or at least differently than other shows on TV. So we're going to spend some time talking about show production. Did you say Coming Down the Pike? Because Euron's more in the show
6: now? Oh. (laughs)
1: Oh, oh. Greyjoy's feature. featured. Yeah, no, yes. Whoa. No. Coming I think down. it's a good time. Like no, the... no, no, no.
6: <laughs> Jeff, what was that? <laughs> puns are assaulting my ears. Assaulting your ears like the salt of the um, Greyjoy ships? <laughs> the... Oh, my gosh.
2: Oh, it, and then maybe there's smoke somewhere from his anger.
0: From this super hot
6: fire. Are you
1: a Zora high, sir? <laughs> I'm going to turn the fan on in my house and have to have you edit in your all mouse? the fan noise out. House. Oh.
0: so the first aspect of the show production that i think we all want to talk about is the music ramin jawadi's music and here to talk with us about <laughs> thanks for the music eliana here to talk with us about the music is sam our resident music man
3: Ah, uh, yes music
2: Nice. Good job. We did it. We did it We recorded the segment.
3: (laughs) Raymond Javadi is the show's excellent composer. And instead of just providing incidental and atmospheric music without much in the way of continuity, he uses multiple motifs and themes. Musical motifs or leitmotifs are musical phrases repeated throughout a piece in association with a particular person, place, organisation or whatever else. Some famous ones a lot of people will know are the Shire motif from The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. You know, the... Yeah, yeah. Uh, The Force theme. (laughs) uh, You've heard it enough. The Force theme from Star Wars, uh, you know, when Luke looks at the binary sunset and it was played all the time in Force Awakens as well.
6: light
3: motifs are used less uh, in hollywood these days as a lot of films are trending toward just more less distinct atmospheric stuff Uh, but they still pop up uh one that was quite acclaimed it was the wonder woman motif established in batman v superman and then carried across to the wonder Woman movie which is that electric cello going yeah that's the best part of the movie they, they, they tend to suit uh, film series and television better than individual films because the longer the runtime, the more chance the composer gets to iterate and develop on the themes and associate them with more and more things. Uh, Raymond has talked about how in season one he held off on a lot of themes because he didn't want to overwhelm anyone. So you can imagine in a 10-hour unit compared to a film's two-hour unit how difficult it is to establish these kind of associations for so many things. Helpful. I like this. I like this. Uh, but that was the main theme. Uh, definitely the most recognizable since it blares out at the start of every single episode of the show. Sometimes the rhythmic uh, march like bit, which I didn't play, which is like the dun- dun-, dun 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 dun, is repeated in a lot of different cues. A lot of the White Walker stuff uses that. Uh, But the melody cropping up is always more noticeable because it's a melody, it's much more catchy and it recurs in a lot of big dramatic moments like uh, partway through the light of the seven uh, in the season six finale. In the season one finale when it cuts to credits ends in a lot of other moments and of course it's recognizable because people are so attuned to it since it plays, oh what, how many episodes do we have, 60? You hear it at least. Sixty times at this point.
6: The main theme also has a great aspect to it, where it starts out in minor chords and then immediately transitions to like an uplifting major version of the same chords, and then goes back into doing the rest of the. theme. I do love
3: how it ends on the C major. Yeah, it's a. It gives
0: it. I think it gives it that suitably epic quality, right? I mean, it's that fantasy series that it needs.
3: Yeah, funny thing, uh, for as fantasy as the music is, D and D told Javadi specifically to not use flutes. Because he said they're too, they're too. They both thought they were too Tolkieny. They were too Lord of the Ringsy. Yeah, people would think That's an too folksy.
0: That is interesting. Yeah, I I kind of agree with them on that. Like, if you want to differentiate yourself from Lord of the Rings, yeah, don't use flutes.
6: I think if yeah. you were having a special theme for like Septon Ray or like Small Folk, I think a flute would kind of help with that. But because the show doesn't go much into into the Small Folk. Of the show you don't really get that aspect
3: by you know sept and race season six or whatever i think the shows aren't the goodwill that they're allowed a, a little bit of flute would have been fine but in season one especially they leaned very hard on you know the drums with the Dothriki and everything and the cellos and all that the, the what the dothraiki you know the, 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 the Dothriki tiki The oh <laughs> I would drink that. That sounds like a great. <laughs> yeah. uh, how does How does George pronounce? It? He says
5: Dothra. Dothraki.
2: Dothraki. And I, George is wrong. Yeah, yeah, I know it's his story, but he's objectively. I wrong. hate how he says Stannis. Stannis.
3: Stannis. Stannis. Oh, that makes Toman. him even worse.
1: <laughs> Sorry, we're, we're we're detracting from. Okay. intelligence.
3: Um pss, Theme number two: the Stark theme. <gasps> It almost has a very uh, folksy quality to it without the flute. Very melancholy, too. It sounds better on yeah. the scratchy violins it's normally played on instead of a guitar, because then, you know, it really goes for the tears.
0: Yeah, very much. Uh,
1: I like. The, I, I love
6: yeah. the suck theme. My favorite use of that uh, in the show is when they first approach for the Red Wedding, yeah. and, like, they're approaching the Frey Towers, uh, and you hear it yeah. swell. And I think that really adds to the moment as to, like, the build-up up to that. Red Wedding. Also when Rob appears um out of uh, the woods after capturing Jamie yes. and like Kat and Roderick are sitting oh, yeah. on their horses like waiting, and that really like captures the epic feel of it without having to go through like the whole battle of the Whispering Wood and seeing like Jamie fight Rob and stuff. Yeah. Um I think that's one way with like when season one was lower budget that the music really helps
1: capture um, totally. that yeah, feel the that whole they're story. going for. I do like it though. Too there's there's two other instances where the Stark theme is played where I think are is done extremely well. And the first one comes from se- the opening for season four, the two sword mm-hmm. sequences yeah. where um, the Stark theme oh, bleeds yeah. into the Lannister theme, which I think you're going to talk about a little bit later. I thought was really really cool. I used to listen to that a lot. And then the other one was um, in season six the the transition from um, Lyanna Ned. And baby John to John King in the North. Like that transition was Mm. honestly Yeah.
6: At the same time, I wonder if it wasn't better that they would have used the Targaryen theme that Danny has at that moment. Or if they mixed them.
3: It kind of undercut the reveal to just have he's a Stark, you know, instead of he's a Targaryen. Yeah. To be suggested by the music. No, I agree with you definitely.
5: That's true, but they have really de emphasized Rhaegar a lot.
3: Yeah.
6: The theme really works in that moment as to how it transitions to that moment, and there's like a real strong buildup in the scene where like little baby John is like opening his eyes and like da 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 like that. Yeah. But if it would have transitioned into the Targaryen theme,
2: Well, they also haven't established his father. Been too on
6: the nose for the
5: reveal for them though.
6: But but it's also the Targaryen theme at this time the targaryen theme has more like ethnic like horns and stuff associated with like what we would expect in the middle east with danny no i
1: know exactly, i know exactly what you're talking I don't about
6: no yeah. it could also been something that they changed later on in like editing where they may have like initially like looked mm, to do yeah. more of uh John, Danny, like Targaryen
0: theme, but they figured it wouldn't work. And I so mean, the Stark theme works so the well to build theme. into that. Like, it it works really well in that micro sense of like moving from baby John to the King in the North scene. Uh, the Targaryen thing would have been good in the in the macro sense, maybe. Yeah, to talk about his parentage, but really, just it, in the context of scene to scene transition, it's it's a nice nice use of the motif. In
2: terms of storytelling, we aren't really is, like we've kind of like talked about Rhaegar here and there, but they haven't established in that scene yet that. John's father is Rhaegar. They don't even mm. like really talk about it much. The only thing that's really revealed at that moment is that Lyanna is his mother. So it doesn't...
0: And Ned is his
6: father. Mm. Uh, yeah. I, yeah, apparently we... some
2: people interpreted yeah. it that way.
3: Oh Well, how are, yeah. else are you supposed to on that? We'll get into this later. The other... Yeah, my other thoughts on that would just be some other big tragic occurrences of the theme would be when Ned killed Lady... Uh, When Rob was crying to a tree about his dad dying. (laughs) You make it sound funny. Uh, And the most tragic thing of all, uh, whenever there's a Winterfell establishing shot.
5: (laughs) Saying they overuse it.
3: (laughs) I'll leave you to (laughs) to
0: Uh Uh-oh, I caught Sam. (laughs) That one's up to our interpretation.
5: Uh, All right.
3: And then there's uh, air quotes, Littlefinger's theme. I'll get into the air quotes after we hear it. Similar. I'm calling it the little finger theme here in 2017. Mm-hmm. The reason for that is I think this is what makes it more interesting than a theme like the Stark theme because uh, what that motif was associated with wasn't clear at first, and I think it was a case of Javadi iterating it o- over time. Because uh, when we hear it in season one, it's used like a general Lannister theme. It plays when Kat receives a letter from her sister, that led to the uh, escalating Scar- Stark Lannister tensions. And then in season two, it kind of broadens out to be a more general conspiracy theme. It plays when Joran, Gendry and Arya sneak down away from the Lannisters at the end of the season two premiere. Mm. And then in season three, its big moment is during Littlefinger's chaos is a ladder speech. And from then on in the show, it's used more like a Littlefinger theme, which I think is really cool because it retroactively associates Littlefinger with that scene in season one, where Kat mm. receives a yeah. sister's letter, that's oh. smart. And then that's ah, yes. Littlefinger all along. That is that's awesome, a, that's an excellent yeah. connection. Yeah. And
1: then I do you think, think it, it's intention- Do you think it's intentional? Not at
3: all. I've I talked about this in a thread <laughs> <laughs> uh, months ago. I don't think there was any chance because it was used <laughs> in all sorts of other situations that have have had nothing to do with Littlefinger. But I think it fit really well. It was very serendipitous in that way when they used it for him. And I don't think it ever worked right as a Lannister theme anyway, because the Lannisters' favorite type of music would have to be casterly rock.
2: Oh, I get it, I get it. Oh, my God. Oh my casterly rock and roll, wow. and then he would mm. have really gotten it.
0: Mm. Casterly rock. Yeah.
6: yeah. And th- this is a good example of where the theme was initially used in a different spot and then became more of something that really helped work. Um, there is one other theme that I think that they they overused it in a way that was somewhat inappropriate. And that's, uh you don't have it on the list here, but it's the Greyjoy theme for Theon Greyjoy. Well, not Theon's main theme, but he has a secondary theme that's called Pay the Iron Price. Mm. Where it, it captures this um aspect of, like, the swelling of the ocean. And it's got a very, like a person on a ship that's in the middle of a, a vast ocean and he's lost. And I think that really works in Theon's aspect of his story where he like beheads Roger Castle and the music um, plays really loudly. Oh, it I became sh-
3: like a general beheading.
6: Ah, uh, might say, yeah. Do you hear it again when Rob beheads... Rico Karstark Yeah, and then you hear it again yeah. when John beheads Jano Slint. And it's kind of like they've undercut this theme in ways that when they come back to needing to have a theme for Euron it like becomes almost comical because they don't have they can't go back to it as well and Euron's theme I think is like one of the lesser themes hopefully they, uh, they change it if you juxtapose if you place pay the iron price over that scene it it seems to fit almost with the exact cut like it was originally cut to be used at that moment but then it was replaced later with his coronation music which is i would say the worst piece in the show yeah it, it's Absolutely. main notes are da, 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 da. but that's like that's sad trombone music that's like note for note sad trombone like <laughs> Wah,
0: wah, wah, wah. So I, I thought I always thought Euron's <laughs> theme was just like you know, yo ho, yo ho,
3: pirate's life. From <laughs> um, <laughs> there's a there's a track on I think it's a season three soundtrack called "Reek" where it does like the Theon theme you like so much in a really like jaunty style when um Theon's getting chased on the horse when he's like done the escape ah. that Ramsey let him do. It's it's it sounds just kind of funny how they <laughs> like a like, roll it to like up. a bonanza like, theme song <laughs> cover it. yeah like a benny hill
6: version of the theme song <laughs> yeah
3: <laughs> going of the guy. swelling waves i think this
0: is really in- like the how Littlefinger's Littlefinger's theme as we're calling it kind of does retroactively work but then something like theon's theme um the way it's used end up ends up kind of Maybe diminishing it.
5: I was listening to the little finger one and I th- I actually thought it would be Varus's because it kinda
2: It feels cr- crawly. Yeah, same. Same.
3: I don't know, I got like the image of a spider. Yeah. <laughs> I-, I wish every character could have an individual one.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Can't tell if I'm being am I being condescended to No,
3: no, no, not at all. I really I really thought that'd be neat. The spider thing, I can see what you're saying. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's crawling and slow mm, yeah. and deliberate.
2: And
5: that's mm. not Littlefinger. Littlefinger's chaotic. That's little mean, Littlefinger's mm. theme should just be improvisational
3: jazz, I think.
2: Or mm. math rock.
5: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or like slam
3: poetry.
2: <laughs> yeah, that too.
3: The other big theme that I think changed over time was, uh, what now? Uh, I know, um, Javadi calls it the Aria theme. I thought of it as more of a bravos theme, mm. but it's first played in, pilot when Bran's climbing everywhere. And it, it's like continuously yeah. plays in that episode like to do with Bran. But then as the show goes on, uh, yeah, it gets associated with Jacken and Arya and, and Bravos. Oh wow, do, yeah. Do,
4: do, 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 It's, great. it's do, yeah. Do, 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 do. They play
3: it on a hammered dulcimer now and it just sounds uh, lovely. It's one of the greatest instruments I think the show uses. Is that
2: the instrument that he's using in that video... Yes On Facebook Okay yep. that's cool I'm-
3: The one that he like It's like tapping Yeah Yeah, duh, duh,
2: duh, yeah. Duh, 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 duh. Hammer dulcimer's yeah. Are
3: Dope Yeah
2: We'll put a link to this video
3: Yeah what's another theme For us Sam I'd call this one The Iron Throne theme Although I've had People tell me It would be more accurate To call it the Baratheon theme mm. And it goes a little Something <laughs> like this
2: Wow this is really Abstract <laughs>
1: Do you remember this? This is the king's arrival
0: when Bran is first looking out over the battlements and and sees the Baratheons coming. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
6: Because I
2: don't remember any of these songs from the show.
0: Well, Robert dies really
6: quickly, <laughs> and then you never he- you don't hear it until like I think Joffrey's wedding
3: again. It's played
6: and Tommen. Yeah,
3: you hear it later in season one when. Joffrey's charming Sansa, and it's got that shot with, like, the sun, and he gives her the necklace. Mm. There's a lovely arrangement of it there. I forget the name, but it's on the Season 1 soundtrack.
4: Huh. Oh, yeah.
3: Uh, you hear it in the Season 2 premiere, that Littlefinger theme, which plays oh. in the closing shot, then segues in the credits into that uh, Iron Throne royalty Baratheon theme. Oh, cool. And then, yeah, there's the choral version with Tommen. Yeah, it's it's a lovely theme. Sounds very royal, fits in a, its ideas very well. And I like that it's not 100% clear what exactly it's meant to be associated with whether it's royalty in general the Baratheons in general like with Gendry mm-hmm. but then why is it with Joffrey like I think it's fun with these cues to try and work out what exactly the composer's trying to suggest with them. yeah totally it's, it does have this great royal feel to it like a,
0: hmm.
2: y-
3: you hear it and you're like okay oh, yeah
0: the king's entering the room totally I get that
2: it really does though it does
5: <laughs> yeah it sounds like something you hear at a Ren fair maybe it's supposed to be more authentic to i mean the music of the time i guess
6: i would have liked to hear this more merged with stannis's theme as the show went along and it became more prominent that mm. stannis was uh becoming the like one true heir to robert rather than just um guy who's trying to attack dragonstone as he becomes like more i, I wouldn't say noble but more less evil stannis more like core to being a good character and like merging that in with his original theme when he's attacking blackwater i think that would have been more neat but yeah you don't get that
3: i would have worked with like the brathian angle too if that was the direction they're going for the thing right yeah like he, this agree. character
6: is becoming more kingly mm. more ro- like he's he's But they don't go with that angle in the show at all. He just like walks down to Winterfell and dies. But like if he was say going to like the the House Wool and stuff and the Mountain Clans of the North and like rallying an army and his theme transformed, I think
3: that would have been really neat. Well, that transitions very neatly into Stannis's theme in general.
6: wonder what they're trying to convey here.
0: <laughs> Sadness. It sounds a little bit well, like when the wolf comes know, in and Peter sound- and the wolf. <laughs> That's sort Aww. of the-
3: It sounds like a daughter uh, burning. Uh. It's weird. Back in back in the day, back post season 1, pre season 2, you know, 2011-2012, I was so excited for the show's version of Stannis and I was so keen on what their interpretation of him would be, what his song would be like. And then he ended up being what he ended up being. <laughs> and I was very taken aback at how villainous and ominous uh, his motif was. It was quite jarring to me. And then I thought, I'm just going to look forward to when Javadi is going to transpose it into a much more triumphant, joyful cue for that moment when he saves the wall. And then they just played the same old ominous, scary version over it, which, you know, definitely <laughs> set a different tone than I took from the book in that scene. Well, that,
1: the Dance of the mm-hmm. Dragons theme that's played at the end of Stannis's arc is... In my opinion, I think it's the best motif the show used because they do use that Baratheon or that Stannis theme, but they also mix in other... I can't, I can't remember what other themes they bring into it. That's the They use the Bolton-associated theme, though, yep. for that moment, more than
6: Stannis's theme because the Boltons kind of get their own theme at that point. It's very small, um, and I, I don't even really remember it, but I remember it from that moment, and that's like when you see the horses rising over the distance... It's the Bolton-esque theme more than Stannis.
3: Yeah. The Bolton's theme, I think it first cropped up when Roos legitimized Ramsay, and then they used it kind of sparingly until um Season 5 and Season 6, yeah. 300 miles this way, 400 miles that way, 500 miles, yeah. <laughs> That's the one.
0: <laughs> I gotta say, Sam, I really agree with you on like, the the scene where Stannis charges in at the wall and saves everybody. The music there just disappointed me a lot, because... Yeah. Yeah, in the books, yeah, you read it and you're like, "Oh, wow, it's Stannis! All right, great."
6: It's really swelling in the books too, because George is like painting is like John's hearing outside, Stannis, Stannis, and it's very mm-hmm. triumphant. Mm-hmm. And like this, the Savior is coming, but they're like all standing around like outside, wondering like what the heck is going on. And then like you in the show, you see the smoke clear, and then you see like do do do. He's like,
4: "What dreadful." <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah, very, very spooky.
1: It could have been cool to use the the Baratheon or the Robert theme there. Oh, right? I mean, yeah, that's yeah. probably what they should have opted for. Do, 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 oh, that would, oh yeah, awesome. that would have been
0: Can someone, can someone beautiful. re-edit that?
5: Especially because John, John initially thinks it's Robert. He's like, yeah, it's Robert, right. it's King
1: Robert. Yeah, oh it's Robert, come again.
0: He sees the stag on the banners first, right, and then he doesn't understand <laughs> the fire <laughs> and the heart. <laughs> Hold up. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Hold up.
0: Oh man! So wow, wow, I'm glad we're fan uh, soundtracking.
3: You know, another very ominous musical cue is the rains of Castamere.
0: I I don't think I know that one. Can you? Uh, can someone give me a few bars? <laughs>
6: I also like the moment in the show when Braun sings that and like the show's created moment w- between him and Sandor at Blackwater.
1: Mm. It was a cool way they did that, yeah. I wonder sure. if because
3: the theme was developed for season two in that way, that's part of why the thing that became the Littlefinger theme was shunted off from the Lannisters. Mm,
4: yeah.
1: Well, the the thing I remember about season two about the, the Reigns of Castamere theme is that it was first whistled by Tyrion in the first episode. That's right. Then yeah. sung by Braun in the Blackwater episode. And then finally the National did the version of it that closed out Blackwater, which is the greatest episode of Game of Thrones that's ever been Agreed.
0: produced. Agreed. Uncontroversial.
1: I would say The Reigns of Castamere is probably the
5: most well-known yeah. song, right? It's gone further oh, than yeah. any yeah. of other And others. they know it, too. I mean,
0: they, they...
3: Yeah. I think the show overplays it. I remember <laughs> when, uh, you know, the post-rock band CROs were announced for season four. I thought their style is going to match The Last of the Giants so um, well. This is going to be absolutely amazing. Yeah, that would been good. And then that they just be. played yeah. The Reigns of Castamere again. Yeah. And then, you know, it crops up so much. I love it. It's a great... Track, but it's like <laughs> there's that whole name <laughs> of like a Game of Thrones episode ending, and then it just playing that song as the credits because it feels like it's happened yep. so many times. Yep.
0: Now speaking of of <laughs> playing a song at the credits, um, there was one that I wanted to bring up with the music, the Bear and the Maiden Bear. Fair, and the maiden. as done by the Hold Steady, oh, which yeah, that. okay, yeah. It's I, so good, yeah. I, that was ov- on, honestly probably one of my favorite cuts to credit in the entire series just because of how over the top and ridiculous that was.
3: <laughs> I remember the really funny thing when that happened was all the initial pirated rips of the episode had a fault in the audio. And so that track <laughs> started playing about two minutes before it was meant to. So when they start pushing Jamie down <laughs> on the stump, it starts playing and you don't hear the scream or anything. And I saw all these comments complaining and then I saw some comments praising this brave stylistic <laughs> choice of, you know, breaking the immersion <laughs> to communicate how <laughs> distraught Jamie was. And it was just, you know, a complete flaw.
2: So I have a different version of the Bear and the Maiden Fair based on the book, not the notes that they give us. It's just more like a bear, a bear, a bear, and not very tonal, but.
3: There's a guy on YouTube who did all the book songs uh, in his own style. Is uh, I'd have his name written down somewhere because I don't know the MP3s. But he did a really good um, take on all of them. That was like in a link it. We'll link it. We'll link it. Yeah, is it the one where yeah. it's like,
6: Oh, come, they said, come to the fair. The fair said he, but I'm the bear, all oh, black yes. and brown. Oh, I've and have that. Might yeah. be that, yeah. I think
2: I've heard one. that one, yeah, yeah. That
0: one's really good. Yeah, yeah. I've heard that I
2: like expression that
0: too. That's really good. And he has
3: a different Reigns of Castamere too, uh, which is interesting since the show one is such an earworm. It's so dominant, To hear yeah. another uh, take on it.
0: Yeah, it's funny because really of the book songs... George gives us quite a few, but we've really only heard majorly, The Bear and the Maiden Fair and Reigns of Castamere. We got a bit of The Dornishman's Wife, uh, just as did the singer of that song, am I right? But, um, hey-oh. Whoa! (laughs) The other song, obviously, that we're missing is The Last of the Giants, which you already brought up. And the great thing about The Last of the Giants is it can also be, um... Uh, sung to the I think it's the Mexican Hat Dance if, I'm, if I remember right. <laughs> but I am the last of the giants. <laughs> <Ba-da-da-da-da-da-da-da>. <laughs> if you <laughs>
4: never, never
1: picture that. Yeah. I hope all these songs make it to the final cut of this.
0: So I just I always have this image in my head of you know Egret in the show like sitting down and like they're at, you know campfire at night and she like leans in close to John. And then, like a mariachi band steps out from behind a rock, and goes, <laughs> oh, "Oh, I am the last of the giants, my dear <laughs> the last of the great mountain giants." <laughs> oh, you know, uh.
6: yeah, it's supposed to be a really sad it's song. So sad. You got a Mexican mariachi band <laughs>
0: singing to it, like shaking maracas <laughs> yeah, and like all the exactly. streamers going, yeah. It's like one of those wailing trumpets, you know. Um.
6: Maybe Mansarthur Dane Rhaegar brought the mariachi band up from Dorne. <laughs> Oh, man. they'll like rip off their and,
0: like, as the last notes of the song ring out he... they
6: rip off their like free full clothes and they're
0: just like Shh. <laughs> <Yeah. sighs> anyway, so that's just a fun factoid
6: This is why i really I hated the night's watch because they got
0: rid of my mariachi red outfit <laughs> <laughs> oh it was part of that screw. Made me throw my sombrero to, away. To, so the, she the wouldn't let me the, wear my
6: sombrero. Bron, Bron's,
1: the other song that's missing from Game of Thrones, I think for the most part, is um, The Dornishman's Wife. Unless Am I remembering correctly? Yes, that Bron, Bron sings it,
6: sings it uh, in season five while they're approaching uh, the Water Gardens. A,
0: a couple bars, yeah. Yep.
6: Yeah, he sings And then he yeah. sings it again, I think later to Tyene, and then she gets all like, oh, yeah, I love your singing, yeah. Bron. You got such a <laughs> sexy voice there, Bron. <laughs> Then something about an evil cat? <laughs>
3: close. Very close, Matt. Yeah. Close. Yeah. That's what I interpreted it as. You want the Dornifan's wife, but you get the reins of Kastamir again.
6: Jeff, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. Come back. He's choking on his wine. Oh, or is it the pigeon pie?
5: Damn.
2: Or the poison oh. ivy lips from Dorn.
0: Don't worry. There's dualism. We'll it bring him is. back to life. <laughs> it's poison ivy from Batman, isn't it?
2: It is. It is. Wow. I really like yeah. that scene, though. In Batman and Robin.
0: That one stuck with me when I was a kid. Yeah.
2: Me too.
0: Now
6: that we cut to like credit and oh, credit ending scenes. I want to bring up my favorite one is the one where Shireen uh, sings patch faces like thing. I think that's really eerie. And creepy. Oh, this Ooh, is always that's a summer. summer. Yeah. yeah,
2: what's that one song like? Someone sing it for me.
1: It's always summer under the sea. I know, I know. Oh, oh,
6: oh. What's her name? Uh, what's her name? Carrie Ingram. Carrie Ingram. She uh sung also in Doctor Who. Well, not in Doctor Who, but the like orchestrated live version that they did uh in London or wherever a couple years back. Uh, wake up! The Rings of oh, Akatan that's right, Rings of Akatan and this so 70. like perfect. That's an amazing song. for that moment. What a bunch of nerds. Carrie yeah, <laughs> really
2: <good at> <laughs> Ingram, who is at Con of Thrones*, which
0: yes, well, we big shout out to Carrie <laughs> Ingram, who I met while I was at Con of*. No, I didn't go to. Con we Con we of met
5: Thrones. in spirit. The Doctor Who episode <clears throat> was great until Matt Smith ruined it by yelling at a star for a while. Oh,
6: I love that, that speech. Oh, spoilers! oh it's terrible. Spoilers. That song. I'm um, <laughs> raped.
0: Yeah. Don't <laughs> <still laughs> <right>. worry. <laughs> oh, they help me with dogs in the Daylight.
6: We will march into the sea and out again, and the mermen will both cease to shout our coming. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> it, so I, I, this isn't an original thought, but someone pointed this out to me once, but now I can't um, help but imagine George R. R. Martin doing that. Intentionally with the last of the giants, like sort of in his head, like I have the last of the giants. Da, da,
2: da, da, da.
6: <laughs> I would be intrigued to hear, like, what they sound like inside of his head.
3: Yeah,
2: That's out, how has no one asked him that at a con? Yeah,
3: Sam, <laughs> next time he's here,
2: <laughs> or you can just come here. Oh, ooh, ooh, world con, world con. Yeah, there's one in Helsinki, but I don't think I'll make it to that one. We can, I would def go to the one in San Diego from
3: 2018. Last motif. Or the last music.
2: The last of the Giants.
3: Yeah, music. Uh, I wanted that's, that's what it's called, right? Sounds in that order. Music I wanted to talk about was Light of the Seven, a track that garnered tons and tons of attention, partly because uh, it's quite different from the show's usual music, partly because it was a long track, quite long, seven minutes, I think, that let the episode focus on the music without the dialogue or much else covering it, and partly just because it's a really damn good cue. And it marks the first appearance of Piano in the show's score And Raymond Javadis talked about how the instrument's appearance that hadn't appeared in the show before Was meant to be intentionally jarring, so as to cue viewers that there's something not right with what's going on screen Um, Which was, of course, Cersei's you know, dastardly plan And then, as it's a long track and it slowly builds up and adds instruments and iterates on itself It matches the escalating tension of the scene With the young boys singing, coming on when the little birds appear on screen and then the organ ramping up as the tension gets higher and higher. Then the orchestra and the main theme motif finally entering at the end right before the big explosion. It's very, very well. Like, I, I don't think the
0: show had did anything like that before. Linking the track so closely yeah. to what's happening on screen. Very different
6: style. That song is that entire seven minutes of Game of Thrones. Almost entirely. <sighs> for
2: Seven minutes? One minute for each god? Oh, for each yes. of, oh. of the seven?
6: Is that how mm-hmm. long it is? Exactly. No, I don't is...
2: know, you just said it was seven minutes.
0: Nine minutes, 50 seconds. I was going to say that the seven are basically the horoscopes of, of Westeros. I mean, it's these archetypes you can slap on. I
2: mean, thing. now you have like 84.29 seconds <laughs> per god.
0: <laughs> That's all I need.
2: <laughs> Maybe no, but... not a perfect minute, but...
6: It's also used so sparringly in there with so little dialogue that um, it's very striking and creepy and mm. eerie. As an instrument itself, yeah. because you've had these strings before all the time, like swell and build and be be stroked, but now you're like striking them with like a, a hammer, as a piano does, and it creates a very like striking feeling towards the audience, or some some bullshit I'm trying to yeah, say. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, it, it is. <laughs> it, I don't know. <laughs> what you
2: say? But if we're talking about hammers, what about Arya? <sighs> But Arya has the little hammer. Oh, I thought you
0: were talking about Gendry. Instrument. Oh yeah, the dulcimer. Oh yeah.
6: Oh yeah. There's a difference in the in the hit, because strings resonate more than a solid block of uh, wood or metal. In that, where it's yeah.
0: yes, they resonate quite a lot more than this, which has no resonators on it. For the record, because it's a travel marimba, yeah. so it just sounds very dull. And
7: Aww. you've
6: also got like the the two boys in there singing the. The theme as well, which their voices like blend and almost contrast, and they go like semi-flat in some ways that makes it more eerie. But then they like come back into tone. Very, it's like very, very subtly, but it creates this very eerie sense to that moment. Um, also works well with having the little birds, yeah, in the scene sure.
3: and the church focus in general, because mm-hmm. you know how church choirs, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, little boys yes. and all that. <laughs> and the, yeah. the uh, mm-hmm. organs too. Yeah, no, it, mm-hmm. it definitely does evoke that sort of cathedral feel. The one mm. thing I've argued with this, oh, well, no, I shouldn't say I've argued with the users about this, although I have, <laughs> but it, <laughs> <laughs> I've argued with users about this because their opinions are really wrong. Edgelord. <laughs> it's when they um go, uh, the piano is so anachronistic, the show, you know, jumped the shark musically. I don't... <sighs> On TV tropes, they have a thing called the coconut effect, which is when an unrealistic anachronistic element is so widely accepted in pop culture that people think it's the real thing, and they get mad when it's not in there. Like when the horse hooves that are two coconuts being plopped against each other—horses only sound like that yeah. on cobblestone. Yeah. But so many shows, you know, like Monty Python did the whole thing about it. Put that for horses who went anywhere, or when swords get drawn from their scabbards, they don't swing. Yeah, but because but movies and games always use it. The show's music has always been anachronistic since the first, like, minute of the show, where it has all those synth sine waves going on, and it has the synth strings in the intro, computer-generated noises happen all the time, there's a didgeridoo that plays the wildling motif, (laughs) and the show isn't taking place in any time, there's no cron for the anachronistic, it's not in our history, there are no Australian Aboriginal people in the show, so how is there a didgeridoo there, why isn't that getting the complaints? It's a really good piece of music, and I find it just bizarre to try and invalidate it because it's an instrument not there. But show start since literally the first minute of the show, there's been instruments not there. There aren't computers in Westeros. How are they getting sine waves happening? Right. Yeah.
0: So I, I, I yeah. think you're right, Sam. And I think there are many people out there who are wrong. Yeah. And one by one, we will
6: uh... <laughs> <laughs> destroy them. Having the organ and the piano there really really echoes the church sense. That they're trying to capture mm. in this moment with the Great Sept of Baelor. and so it adds into the moment. I mean, yes, the piano was not around. The harpsichord came for. It. Have we heard the harpsichord on the show?
2: At harpsichord? All?
6: No,
0: because it sucks. God What's damn, real? son, what do you wow. got against the harpsichord? Jesus. I just, I, I genuinely do think that the harpsichord can only work for like certain TV shows soundtracks, though with a very specific period not uh, historically it fits yeah. with a lot of things but i think culturally it just evokes like victorian women in drawing rooms for whatever reason that's the harpsichord
3: jane austen type stuff
0: <laughs> yeah jane austen kind of stuff so and that's not historically accurate but that's the sense
3: of it it's like the flute thing yeah it has an association so strong that it would create connections in viewers minds you might not want right connotation that's so what wrong, i mean yeah, yeah thank you it's also a bad instrument. Right, it sucks. <laughs> <laughs>
0: it sucks.
3: It doesn't sustain the
6: tone, so you like have to have another like orchestra behind it mm. for whatever you're playing. Like whereas the organ and the piano, like it detons, but it like hums mm. and keeps going. Harpsichord plucks and then it dies.
5: For the uh, for the light of the seventh, didn't they also use that in the last trailer?
6: They did. Yeah, they, they did. did. Yes, and that's
5: and that's sort of you. You could say that as like Cersei's explosion and killing all those people was still echoing forward like mm. um they're all under the the shadow of that explosion still as that trailer is going on. Well and and they really, really I cool.
0: mean it's also it's such a good piece of music and it's so now it now there's so much emotion wrapped into it because of the season 6 finale that they just I mean they kind of had to use it for a trailer at some point because immediately as soon as those notes start up you're like, "Oh, wow. Yeah, Game of Thrones. Wow." Yeah. Uh, yeah. A lot of the
6: time, these trailers as well, they use interchangeable trailer park music mm-hmm. that they have like on a dolly. And this is one way where they mm-hmm. can actually use Game of Thrones music without having mm. to go back to a different theme. Like, um, the I know the theme for HBO is The Pacific. One of the trailers uses the theme from Stardust uh, <laughs> later on in the show. It's true. It's wow. true. Have to look that yeah. up. It does work in the in the motion of the trailer, but yeah. So here they can tie it right back into the show mm-hmm. without having um trailer park music. Remember the the
3: first shorts. trailer for Man of Steel. The trial. The music was the music when Gandalf died. Was the wait
0: was the music from, from when Gandalf the died? Yeah, I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wow. Not,
3: yeah, wow. The
0: Bridge oh, of Khazad Dooms.
2: It's also like Light of the Seven is the next most I think iconic song, partially because of it was so recent. The next most iconic song from Game of Thrones, just because it like was so different from the other ones, yeah, because mm-hmm. of the piano. A- aside from like the theme song, and you're not going to use like the theme song in a trailer. It's an interesting like diversion, and it stands out to me from other trailers that I remember that like tend to use other songs from artists. Like you know, we had David Bowie's "Heroes," and then
0: uh, "Sit Down." That one.
2: The sit down, and then there was another one that I forget.
0: Oh, I believe it was, um, Potato by the Wiggles. Um,
2: (laughs) yes, yes, and it was about how musical chairs and the Iron Throne, and it was a symbolism about Mm -hmm. the Iron Throne and musical Mm -hmm. chairs.
0: That's a real trailer, you can look that up, everybody. Mm. No, you can't, it doesn't exist. Uh, well, that was a lot. We said a lot of words about music. That was a
3: ah, yes, music.
0: Mutt and Jeff will join us again for uh, cin- our cinematography discussion, but for now we're going to move into the costumes of Game of Thrones, which I think is probably one of the sickest elements of the show. We can all agree. I'm going to hand it off to our resident expert guests, who are our VIPs who are joining us. We've brought so much information on costumes that my head is going to explode with epaulets and embroidery.
7: Hi, I'm Mighty Isabel, and I am one of your moderators, and I am here to talk about costumes.
8: Hey, I'm Fat Welda, and I'm also here to talk about costumes.
0: Michelle Clapton, who, um, she did all of
8: the costumes for the show,
0: or most of the seasons, I think, right?
8: She had left for one season, I believe, and now she's back again.
0: Word, okay. Just like-
8: Just like Bran.
0: Just like Bran. She left for a season and returned.
2: The Swarovski costume designer of the year.
3: She- one stuff for the
0: Crown, I think. She
7: won an Emmy.
0: She has won 2 Emmys for Game of Thrones and been nominated for 4 Emmys for Game of Thrones. Yeah, her Emmys were season 4 and season 2.
8: She's also won Baftas for cr- for the Crown.
3: Also has Stannis in it.
8: It does. It does. Ah. As an artist, which is just weird. Interesting.
7: Hmm. <laughs> how versatile.
8: Always yeah. the artists.
7: <laughs> and they know how to point a camera at costumes. So that you can see what's happening in them
0: <laughs> Oh, which maybe you can't say about some other shows that Michelle Clapton has designed costumes for. I,
7: I might
8: I might say that. <laughs> I just know that when I see the pictures of the costumes and her description of all of the thinking that goes into them, it's incredible. Yeah, and I feel like yeah. that is not reflected on the small screen. There's a great yeah. resource,
7: which is the inside HBO seasons one and two, mm-hmm. the the big coffee table books, and they have these beautiful full color photographs. And you can actually see what's happening on the clothes and you can see the detail and the embroidery. And I, I remember just being floored when I saw the photographs of the wildlings. They all have animal patterns painted on their costumes. Oh, wow. I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah, and and so you can see these pictures in the book and you're seeing that they're walking around wearing their stories of their people, right? Whoa. And it's all painted onto the costumes. It's definitely worth checking out if you're interested in the depth of detail that went into the physical objects that the actors are wearing.
0: That's awesome. Well, I mean, not
7: any of this. I don't know how some of this is
8: really intended for us to see on the screen. I mean, the embroidery detail is tiny you get a little bit of that. You're looking at the show and you're like, oh, look, Cersei has, you know, lions on her shoulders <laughs> embroidered there. Cat has fish on her scarf thing. Right. Sansa's wedding dress, if you look at mm-hmm. the detailed embroidery of that, it's like a story of her life from wolves to lions. That actually, the embroiderer has a website of her own where she has some of her work displayed on it.
7: Her name is Michelle Carragher. But in terms of things that we can see on the screen, the favorite costumes are the ones that have really striking shapes and color patterns where the design elements read on the screen through all the color filtering and through everything mm-hmm. else that's going mm-hmm. on. So you're seeing these, these big shapes. And Michelle Clapton has talked about how she put a lot of work into coming up with clear looks for each region and each house to help you see at a glance who, where people's affiliations were and where they might be in transition from one affiliation to another. Like where you see Sansa mm-hmm. showing up in King's Landing. We had been seeing her in Northern Stark clothes and she takes up dressing more like Cersei. And you see a lot of that in King's Landing. The houses swapping off styles.
8: And I think Sansa is the perfect mm-hmm. character to do that because yeah. her situation is requiring her to fit in. And survive wherever she is. So she's in the north, she's going to dress like a northerner, she's going to learn how to embroider like a northerner. And then she moves to King's Landing. And now she's going to dress a la mode with the fancy hair and the uh, sort of cross tied dress. And then, you know, she goes to the Erie and she's adopting the style with the feathers and this more... I guess daring fashion choices. And then she goes back north again, and suddenly she's back in stark colors and stark northern fashions. Granted, it's snowing, so I don't think you would want to wear King's Landing dresses uh, in the snow. But yeah.
7: I was thinking about once you put Sansa in the black feather wing dress, mm-hmm. have you lost the opportunity to then costume her in? pure white wedding dress and present her if you're going to be darth sansa have you have you missed your opportunity to portray her as a lamb to the slaughter
4: Mm. later right like
7: and and thinking about kind of the the arc of the story and i think there is a story you can tell that works with that there's also a a tendency to kind of just want to pretend that saw happening didn't actually happen and now we're telling the story instead and with Mm -hmm. sansa that ends up coming out a lot on on screen in, in the costumes hmm. that she's wearing, especially in the later seasons. I think so. And I think ultimately the
8: showrunners are driving the story and the costumers are having to interpret whatever the showrunners are driving. I, I think that's right. Thinking also in terms yeah. of uh, regional styles, I was reading mm-hmm. Michelle Clapton interviews yesterday, getting ready for this, and she was talking about how the armorers are one of her favorite things like apparently they set up in this huge warehouse and everybody just makes clothing and armor and it sounds like the best thing ever and why didn't i become like a professional costumer instead of (laughs) you know whatever um so she said that the armorers are there working and they have to really think they can't just crank out identical sets of armor and put a lion on it for the lannisters and a direwolf on it for the starks that Thinking about in King's Landing, you have a whole street full of armorers who are trying to get you to buy their armor. And so they have to be the best. It has to be ornate. It has to be flashy. Whereas in Winterfell, you've got one armorer who's making the armor for everybody. And this is something that he learned from his father and learned from his father before Mm -hmm. that. And so Mm -hmm. it's a very familial, passed-down tradition as opposed to this commercial everybody vying to have the best armor. And so they had to think about that when they were designing this interview and this
2: talk that michelle clapton does at the getty museum mm. michelle clapton kind of approaches the costumes in terms of what objects are available to these characters where they live and mm. the things that are available to them and their environment affects how they would dress so when you were talking about armor you'll see that a lot of like the king's landing or southern houses etc have a lot of metal and stuff, but because in the north it's cold, she was thinking that they don't want to have armor that can easily conduct the cold. Their armor is much more of leather Mm -hmm. to keep them warm, as it also allows them to move It's in all the ways that leather is armor. And she's thinking about what sort Mm -hmm. of materials are available to them in the north in terms of dyeing or... Things like that.
6: Well, leather also offers less protection than metal armor, so it's a way of showing that the north is not as
3: wealthy as a lot of
6: the southern houses.
3: I know that Ironborn in the books are described as needing very wind-resistant clothing because of, uh, you know... Sailing and all that—the wind being a real cutting force. Oh yeah,
8: yeah. I saw in another interview where she was talking about that they one of the things that they used to condition the armor for the Ironborn was fish oil because she's like, really? of course they would yeah. they would smell like fish, so why not? And the the, the picture <laughs> for it was this beautiful piece. Well, beautiful. It was this piece of leather armor that had the the kraken cut into it, right? But it was clearly like had been oiled, and you know, oh, you wow. can just imagine it just smells like squid apparently the ironborn <laughs> are like awesome. her favorite to close that is interesting, really? since they're also gray really and
6: i've also heard that their costumes smell terrible for like everybody because they never wash them to maintain the
3: colors when they shoot ari was in the same clothes <laughs> for like three seasons can you imagine how that would go oh
8: well they did have to make new sets as she was growing though
3: oh right yeah yeah <laughs> true
2: she talks that's, about that though she's yeah. all like I want you to see on screen the way that they would smell. I want them to look (laughs) smelly or something like that.
0: I mean, yeah, I think that works. They do. People look (laughs) filthy (laughs) in Game of Thrones.
8: Well, so can we talk about that? So that makes sense for the Ironborn to be gray and Mm -hmm. drab and smelly. But then where is Ruse Bolton's pink?
0: Ah,
6: yes. Come on. It's kind of there, but it's very, very muted.
8: In the Middle Ages, they used crazy colors. Everybody has this conception of the Middle Ages as all brown and drab and neutral and gray, and it wasn't. It's like if, if they could get a color on something, they did. I mean, these medieval cathedrals that we see now that are all bone white were painted. Mm-hmm. They were gaudy. They were crazy. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's reflected... In some of the early seasons, you go to King's Landing, everything is colorful, like flowers. You know, you go to Dorne, everything in Dorne is beautiful and vibrant. And yet, like, everything in Westeros above King's Landing is just gray.
3: Yep. Yeah. It's like that, um, uh, when we touched on the coconut effect in the music thing, where it's like a disingenuous but commonly accepted version of how something was in history is preferred over how it actually was. Because people are just so used to fictional depictions of the wrong way. Right. Of it being like right. like with um Greek statues, how we think, oh, they're so sophisticated. They're just white. That's, you know, so awesome. When they were like, they really get loud and gaudy and colored in, in reality. Yeah. But people prefer the fake version because it feels real.
7: And they would dress the statues. Yeah. They'd be wearing the fashion. They, oh, they that's awesome. They would be yeah. like standing there, you know.
0: So just really dope mannequins.
7: Exactly. For the Middle
8: Ages, we don't have a lot of extant pieces that are examples of clothing because, as you can imagine, linen does not hold up for, (laughs) you know, a thousand years. So a lot of what we know about medieval fashion is from manuscript illustrations, which would have been done by monks or Mm -hmm. priests. And what do they know about fashion? They're celibate (laughs) Mm -hmm. men living in isolation. (laughs) And so, you know, we (laughs) use these things as examples of Clothing of the time, and yet they're still imperfect because through this lens. I mean, can you imagine if Sam was responsible for representing <laughs> all of the fashions of Westeros Sam in Tarly, a book? Not, not he Sam may, the modern, yeah, right? Sam Tarley, yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. Um, if Sam Tarley were responsible for recording all of the fashions of Westeros in a book, he may or may not be able to draw well. He may or may not know yeah. what a woman looks like. You know, <laughs>
4: yes. Sam, you had sex. one job. Mm. Well, right. he had
8: sisters, but yeah, we
2: don't like those depictions and of what people wore really start to come through more,
7: you know, in the Renaissance. You can see from the very beginning of the show that Michelle Clapton wasn't trying to replicate medieval fashion. It was a revelation to me to read the book about the show because where it talked about how she mixed European armor with samurai armor to get the stark look, you know, with the... Mm. With the the kind of skirt mm-hmm. and the armor at the bottom, right? And you just go with it. it. It looks really cool. It looks great. It's the it it is the look for yeah. that faction. It doesn't pop as being oh that's wrong. Right. Uh, you get costumes like Marjorie's Alexander McQueen necklines, and uh, and Cersei wears those too. You get these pops of modern looks. I was just looking at one this morning. It's an image of Littlefinger in season one before he goes north in King's Landing, and he's wearing this long doublet with like exaggerated pinstripes. He's wearing 20th century power lawyer suit, basically, <laughs> interpreted for King's Landing. It doesn't look medieval. You wouldn't see that in a period piece. It's its own interpretation. And I think that stuff is really cool.
3: Like a similar thing I was saying with the music, right. like they use some things a shorthand to vaguely wave it, you know, period, like the fact it's a mm-hmm. doublet, but they add in all these modern touches like pinstripes or, you know, like piano or guitars or whatever to use this vast, you know, new wealth of art we've had in the century since the Middle Ages. But it works in such a way that the viewer, you know, just thinks, yeah, that makes sense mm-hmm. for the vague time mm-hmm. the show is totally. in. But mm-hmm. the creators get to do much more interesting stuff with everything that's happened since then. Yeah. They're not locked into something that to limit their creativity.
7: Uh, I'm looking at another example of mixing medieval style elements but across periods and across mm-hmm. gender. It's Samar's favorite Cersei dress. It's the it's the armor dress.
0: Love it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the one she wears for
7: Blackwater. Yeah, that one is
8: fantastic.
6: Bassmaster's favorite dress.
8: It should be everybody's favorite dress. You look at this dress. it's
3: getting addressed. Stop it. <laughs> <laughs>
7: <laughs> so you look at this dress, and it's got the long sleeves with the- big cuffs at the bottom of the- Very Angevin, yes. Right, that's Mm -hmm. medieval. But then it's got this Renaissance waistline, or maybe even later than that, maybe Cavalier, I don't know, in the waistline there at the bottom of the armor. And then you get the gender mashup of the armor with the dress. Right. And it totally hangs together. It looks right for this character in this place. Mm -hmm. She looks like she's standing in the same world there with Tommen. Right. I feel like she looks so much more queenly
8: in that dress than she does in anything that was in last season or that has been
7: previewed for this next season. I
8: know. I know. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, she's gone full Romulan now, but.
7: Yeah. (laughs) And there's an example of the gorgeous embroidery there. It's got the red and gold colors for her house. It's all pulling together to tell the story of where she is at that moment. A lot of the mm-hmm. really great clothes on Danny and Sansa have this interpretive outside of period quality. That's really great. And there's a big butt coming, but you know, like.
6: Are you th- talking about Danny's dress in the Valantine brothel?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Wowza!
8: Did you did you read the interview where Clapton was talking
7: about that? Yeah, yes, that was- I did. That was great. Yeah. Yes. That's the fashionista interview where she talks about that. The assless dress. That
8: was a smart choice, though. I like that choice. I no, I mean, when I watched that episode, that made me smile.
0: Yeah, yeah.
7: yeah.
8: I got it. All right. So, so the Elena yeah. dress,
0: the Elena dress. Yeah.
8: I mean, Elena is fabulous, and the costumes that they put her in are awesome because it is appropriate for a woman of her social stature and age, right? Sure, but
7: but, <laughs> well, so I'm looking at this photograph of Elena Tyrell in the council. Season six, episode four.
4: Mm-hmm. She's
7: standing with Kevin. And Kevin's wearing a very Lannister, King's Landing doublet. He's got the hand pin. He he looks yeah. like he's from there. And her costume is Victorian. It is 19th century in the lapels and in the puffy sleeves. And she's got that medieval wimple on, which yeah. kind of- tricks the eye a little bit into thinking that the period is right because we're looking at her face and maybe not paint but the silhouette is just completely wrong we've never seen those puffy sleeves anywhere i think we saw puffy sleeves in horn hill actually they're they're almost mutton chop sleeves we see puffy
2: sleeves but a different sort of puffy sleeves but that sort of puffiness um on Marcella
7: in dorne
4: mm. mm-hmm.
7: and there's the irie wing sleeve stuff going on in season one on Lysa Aaron, but this Huff? It looks like something that
8: they drug out of Dame Maggie Smith's closet for- Yes. Yeah, for um,
7: Downton Abbey.
0: That's exactly yes. what I was thinking. It's 100% Maggie Smith.
7: To me, what I see is, I-, I always call this the Lady Bracknell costume because it looks like the character from Importance of Being Earnest. It looks like a costume rental. This is a scene from season six. At this point, we are supposed to be looking at Olenna and Kevin to some extent as Cersei's antagonists for the season. Mm-hmm. Kevin and Olenna are staring down Cersei and getting in her way, and we're supposed to see Olenna as a serious antagonist to Cersei, and this is all setting up things that are going to happen at the end of the season. The Tyrells are a serious threat to Cersei's agenda. Mm -hmm. But the costume is screaming, like, low-budget throwaway. Like, we just didn't have any time or resources or money to put into putting her into clothes that she would be wearing in King's Landing at this time. So we just found a costume that fit Diana Rigg and put her in it. It's like generic dowager. Yeah, we'll just, she'll just be like dowager. That's a, yeah. Instead of actually characterizing her in her place at her time, doing what she's doing. I think that dress was in the,
8: was in the trailer for that season. Yeah. And you're watching the trailer and the trailer is setting up the themes and the feelings and everything for the season. You're like, wait, what? What was that? Like, literally nobody has lapels.
7: Um, Now, I saw a great cosplay of this dress in in Baltimore. Like, as
8: a garment, it's great. Michelle Clapton was actually not the costume designer for season six.
7: Yeah, she had other work. So she worked
8: seasons one through five and then took a break for season six and then has returned for the seventh season. (laughs) Season seven. Okay, so we've finally been waiting for Dani to take on her red and black fire and blood persona. And now we have the shots of her in the trailer reaching Dragonstone and she is wearing this armor, basically. I think it's leather. Yeah, it's armor-ish. It's a very severe Mm -hmm. look. And it is now black and red. Although it's really hard to tell that it's actually black and red because of the filters. Mm -hmm. There's red on that? Mm -hmm.
0: Such a shame.
2: Yeah. I think they're like small details, but I couldn't tell you where they are. Because of the filters and it's far away.
0: There was one image they released where there was none of the filter, and you could see like yeah, like all of the red that's in there. It's a ridiculous amount to wash out.
8: It may have been in the short that they did about the costumes for season seven. Well,
0: mm. the making of shot that brought the colors
6: out is actually a heightened saturation filter yep. also on the camera. Yep. Um, so there's a bit more mm, red in okay. that shot than is actually visible in real life. But if you go back and you look at Viserys' costume in season one. That red there is also fairly muted, so it's not like they they undid totally like mm-hmm. how they were doing the costumes bright and vivacious mm-hmm. with I it.
7: think we can just call that red Melisandre Red, like for the way that Melisandre's red shows up on the show.
2: Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
7: Um speaking of this series, in this interview
2: that Michelle Clapton does for season seven, she actually says that she's trying to hearken back somewhat. To Visery's costume. Cool. In yeah, for like you can see it in the photo that posted. Like she says, and now she's finally got her armor, she's finally got everything, and she can really finally echo the style of her brother with the extended shoulders and the red and the symbolism. He always had the big Targaryen sigil on his chest. Now she's got the big chain with the dragon's heads on it. And the chain yeah. she was saying something about how D- Danny's wearing a chain. Um
6: It's only one chain, though.
2: Yeah, yeah. Not two chains, but she's wearing that chain to uh, her symbol of royalty because she doesn't feel that she should wear a crown yet because she is not yet the queen or hasn't like conquered Westeros to be the queen yet.
0: Right, yeah. There's just so much thought that Michelle Clapton puts into that stuff. It's so awesome. She isn't queen. She doesn't get a crown yet. So she incorporates a different element of the costume to
8: that. And she's talking about the colors that she puts Danny in throughout the series Mm -hmm. and about how at the beginning she was this innocent virginal, like the very first episode when she gets this dress to go meet with Khal Drogo for the first time. And then she evolves into wearing lots of grays and whites because she's supposed to be like ethereal, above everybody, Mm -hmm. you know, queenly. Mm -hmm. And now she's sort of descending into this darker
7: black and red which people have been waiting for. Definitely. I find myself wishing that Danny's look popped and contrasted with the looks of the other women in the cast heading into season seven. Like, Since she is an outsider. Yeah. Right. But everybody's in the emphasized shoulders and nipped in waists. It's all in the same black color scale, which tells us things are really serious. But also there's the same sameness about it that to me gets in the way of connecting with the story that seems to be being promised.
0: Yeah, I mean, all of the Stark kids look very similar now.
7: Hmm. Maybe it's because it's winter. It's yeah. winter,
2: and you got to wear your winter colors before it was summer, and you can have your brights. Uh-huh. And then, you know, we go to Dorne, and they have some of those autumn colors going on, and now it's winter.
8: I don't know. (laughs) It's true that the areas before that had the color were the areas that were warmer. Mm -hmm. But again, if you're looking back historically on Earth in the Middle Ages, just because it was cold, because it was cold a lot, didn't mean that you were just wearing black and brown. You would have bright reds and bright blues and mm-hmm. mm. yellows and oranges. And and tying back to your house, right? Like you would be mm-hmm. wearing yeah. these dresses made of red and white stripes if your colors were run away. I mean, can you imagine a dress and like bright red and bright blue, like tully with the waves and like oh. fish crests embroidered
7: on it. I mean, yeah. like that would be so awesome. Yeah. I want hooplons. And we actually get Littlefinger and Sansa talking about- about that in Feast for Crows, about what colors Sansa's going to wear and how she really needs to not wear the Tully clothes if she's going to pass as uh, Elaine Stone.
6: Right. Right. I've got an in-universe explanation for the muting of colors, and that's because winter is coming, it's freezing in the trade lanes up in the mm-hmm, north, yeah. so they can't import the dyes, the dyes from there. Yeah. And Danny's just interrupted the slave trade in Slaver's Bay, and wow. so they're readjusting their economy. that. Uh, with all the storms that have cropped up that are in the books, maybe they happen in the show too, that's interrupting all the naval trade, and they can't import all the dyes. But there we go. So
7: I have- Here's two problems, right? <laughs> So one problem is that the people who have always been the most cold are the wildlings and the wildlings don't wear black. They don't like the black brothers. Black is not the color of winter from beyond the wall in terms of yeah. the wardrobe, right? Um, it's, it's whites so, and furs. and Black is a dye. And, and then there's the issue of black is not cheap to achieve. Like, it's much easier to mm. achieve natural colors like muted browns. If you're really mm-hmm. digging down and mm-hmm. getting ready for winter, you're not dying every piece of, of fabric black because that's resource intensive.
3: Excellent point.
6: And you're
7: not maintaining it black.
6: Mm. Maybe they just rub it on mm-hmm. the oily black stone. Uh.
7: <laughs> but I like the idea of dye shipping being locked up because of all of the climate change and- Ex-
3: Explanation to die for.
7: <gasps> Stop it.
3: <laughs> got plenty more up my sleeve. Wow. <laughs> I'm going to slash those sleeves. I
0: buttons. think it's
8: just a fashion choice. I think it's black is the in color right now. Black is the new black.
7: <laughs> there are some really beautiful details on these clothes. Danny's dragon pin. The jewelry is really pretty. And mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. to the extent that HBO is employing these jewel crafters and embroiderers, that's great. Like Get that work out there. Get it done. If possible, show it to us on the screen, but it's great that work is getting done. I guess maybe Cersei's wearing black because she's in mourning.
2: That's oh, true. I like, mean, all
7: the people she killed.
8: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I was gonna say, like how yeah. many people have killed in Cersei's life and she's just now wearing all black all the time. <laughs> well,
6: she's got a lot to make up for. Well, she has to keep up the appearance to the small folk that she is in mourning even if she's not. Yeah,
8: but this is literally like her third child that she's lost, and her father, and her husband. And she still managed to wear fairly bright colors through the entire show.
3: That's a really good point. Like I said,
0: she has a lot to make up for, you know?
8: I think someone pointed this out towards the end of last season or
2: at the end of last season that Cersei's current outfit harkens back to Tywin's
8: outfit.
4: Mm-hmm.
8: Um, doesn't it? Like Tywin's armor? Yeah, but here's the thing. Tywin was the hand. He was supposed to be in the background. He was supposed to be like the theater hand who wears all black, that you don't see them going around behind the scenes doing all the crap, right? Yeah. Like, he was. You don't want a king or a queen sitting on a throne wearing all black. Like, that's not splendid. That's not magnificent. That's not.
6: Not evoking a sense of power and dominion.
8: Right. It's just right. it's just it's understated.
2: Cersei might not think that. Cersei, who doesn't think through the political narratives and like things like that, she might be thinking like, I'm Tywin with Teats, as she says in yeah, right. a feast for crows. <laughs> so she's just like, I'm just gonna dress like my father and everyone will know, especially now that my hair is short. <laughs> But Jamie doesn't wear all black.
0: She should look exactly like Jamie now. But
2: Jamie doesn't think of himself as like Tywin. Jamie wants to be less like Tywin. We didn't mention the red jacket. Uh, Oh, We can talk about the red jacket.
0: Can we? (laughs) 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 I mean, I think everyone in the world who has ever seen Game of Thrones can agree that the objectively hottest costume, with the possible exception of that Volantine brothel scene... Is Jamie's leather jacket. (laughs) Jamie's red leather jacket.
8: So I was on the live feed watching that episode when that jacket came on the screen (laughs) and the live feed just erupted. People were like, I want that jacket. That jacket is so hot. Like it was it was
7: huge.
0: It's probably the best thing about season five, I would say.
7: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Just just replace your rewatch of season five with just what Look at this image for ten mm. hours.
0: I can't stop looking at it. <laughs> no, I mean it's no. also the jawline.
7: It's got it kinda... the. I really like the the detail of the stitched-on sleeves that is mm. period-appropriate.
0: Yes. Mm-hmm. It does sort of call back to his season one leather jacket that he wears when he fights Ned, which mm-hmm. is all white with a slash mm-hmm. of red across it. Nice catch. Mm-hmm. Which is just kind of. I mean, thank you. It's a nice catch, which is more like a samurai thing. Like,
8: So I do have to point out that in the picture that I have, and I'm not sure if it's from production or if it was like something like a glamour shot that they took of him while he was on the set. Right. But um, he has two gloves tucked into his belt. <laughs> um. Now, obviously, his golden hand is way bigger <laughs> than his normal hand. There is no way that those gloves are going to fit over that hand. And so I thought yeah. that was really interesting is like, is that like a... Oh, we just put a pair of gloves in there? Or is that like Jamie trying to deny the fact that he doesn't have? I mean, like, I do that with my gloves. Like, when I'm dressed in period clothing, like, you just tuck them into your belt. Sure, right. So it's like a fashion thing? Is that like a psyche thing? Like, he's denying that he (laughs) has.
6: (laughs) I never understood the reason why some knights decided to wear two gloves.
8: As opposed
2: to what? Three? Or one? Or what?
6: That's a Jamie quote. Oh, never mind. with regard to swords,
3: oh, Waven. i read the books, so yeah, I,
0: I've actually never seen Game of Thrones. So <laughs> I like his big old dong belt. Um, anyway, we can talk about <laughs> different. <laughs> <laughs> <things> oh, that <laughs> that's also a period. Uh,
8: <laughs> it's got a little lion head at the end, <laughs> Oh it does Oh, really. Oh, it amazing!
1: Does.
0: The little lion. Oh, wow, that. the giant of Lannister. Oh it's
2: sad. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway. <laughs> Do we want to talk about helmets?
3: That Michelle wears many a hat, but she puts few on the characters.
2: No, she loves hats. She wants to put hats on people. She made. She like loves this Tywin helmet mm. she made and talks about it. And then everyone else makes her take off the hats.
7: So the thing about <laughs> hats, when you're trying to tell a story, is that on stage, directors often end up getting hats off of actors' heads or just cutting the hat altogether because it's really hard to. See an actor's face under the brim of a hat and get that your face lit. If it's about Mm, getting light on the actor's Mm. face, the hat has to come off. And so you can have the actor enter with the hat and to establish that it exists, and then you got to take it off and put it somewhere. You're, You're trying to get this show made and setting up lighting rigs to throw unnatural light up under somebody's hat brim. When you're already trying to get light down on their face,
6: yeah, it's really hard when you watch some war movies like uh, *Band of Brothers* mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. tell like who everybody mm-hmm. is when mm-hmm. they're wearing helmets, mm-hmm. huge hats, um, in like dark locations at night. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah,
3: they should have done selective color grading on each character so you yeah, have purple to follow <laughs> along with blue, red, or <laughs> Where- <laughs> for the sake of the hats. Oh, God.
6: I also feel like there's a severe lack of sombreros beyond the wall. Ugh. Yeah. Where Where's my mariachis just, at? I am the last of the giants.
0: Oh, I am the last of the giants. With,
7: with actual medieval pageantry and display, you would have those helmets out on the, the tournament field with- uh, The crazy things on top. Mm. Right, with sigils yes. and you know whatever yeah. stuff, so that the people in the stands could see who they were looking at.
0: Gregor Clegane's hmm. tiny fist.
7: I mean, I can see why Game of Thrones didn't invest in creating those tiny fist items, right? <laughs> Should have had the tiny fist. Definitely.
0: They
6: could do more helmet reveals though in the show. I can't recall a scene where like somebody they didn't know who it was until they pulled their helmet off. Mm. I think, I think yeah. that would have been interesting mm-hmm. to do at some point or another. Yeah.
2: yeah. They've invested in making the helmets though. They just
7: don't use them. Right. But they're yeah. made.
6: Yeah,
2: they exist. This.
7: That that reveal I know what they're—they are saving that reveal for the night of the Laughing Tree story when Rhaegar finds Lyanna. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. It's actually yeah, probably pretty true. That, that yeah. would be dope. Actually. Zombie yeah.
3: Gregor had moments where, like, you haven't <laughs> seen his helmet off, but they've zoomed into his eyes before, Good. and you can like kind of see the—he looks zombieish. He took yeah. his helmet off uh, right oh, before
6: he? Uh, he became uh, Septon Anella's god. Now, oh, <laughs>
3: I've just scrubbed that season out of my mind. Sorry, so. Oh yeah, (laughs) that
7: scene didn't happen. I don't remember that. I've actually never seen Game of Thrones,
3: so (laughs) purely
0: here for the hats. I thought this was an Outlander podcast, and so I'm just uh, (laughs) really confused. No, the the costumes are just one of the richest aspects of the show. I think, and and we could spend like six hours talking about every detail.
8: I think we've already spent more time talking about it than George does in the books. Mm. (laughs) He doesn't really talk about clothes at all, does he? About fashion. (laughs) No. There's a lot about Mm. armor. If you want to talk about lobster, the armor for everybody. And even she, Michelle Clapton, she even mentions the, the Unsullied and how in the books... Martin describes them as having a point on their helmets. And so she had to try to realize that for the screen. Mm. So she is. That's a good point. At least in some regards, reading the books and taking cues from what George has written. Albeit, there is not a lot in the books. Mm. Yeah.
6: They need like a food person who just does like very ornate pieces of food. George would be interested. (laughs) (laughs) Could the Winds of Winter have costumes be the new food? Because George has now realized that he hasn't. Dealt in descriptions of clothing as much as he should post show era. I don't think he cares mm. about descriptions
7: I don't think, of clothing. I don't think, I mean, people <laughs> don't like the Sansa chapter where she's being fitted for her wedding dress, right? That's mm. one of the more detailed descriptions of getting clothed.
0: That's true. Yeah.
7: I really like that chapter. You're in Sansa's point of view. She thinks she's getting a new dress. She's being lied to about what it's mm. for. And there's interesting things happening in that chapter, but. It's a book, it's not an inherently visual medium. The way that the show can do and really explore things and give you that pop of an image that would take two pages to describe uh, in prose. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I feel
2: like George leans on (laughs) relying on readers sort of stereotypes of the medieval ages when it comes to describing the clothing in Westeros, but Mm -hmm. when it comes to Estos, he goes into a lot of detail about how people Mm. are dressed as a sort of shorthand
7: for conveying culture. You're totally right, Eliana. He does that. Yeah. He does it a lot with the Carthene. And he talks yeah. about yeah. body modification a lot also in essence.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah. he does it for the Tyroshins, etc. Yeah, he like uses it throughout Daenerys' chapters to sort of convey how people approach life.
8: Yeah, like the floppy yeah. ears. She has to wear her floppy mm-hmm. ears because she's the queen of the yeah. rabbits.
2: And he uses the floppy ears and like the clothing of the Miranese. And he even talks about that form and function, which Michelle Clapton thinks about a lot in her Mm -hmm. approach to costuming. But like Daenerys hates it because she can't move. And the idea of not being able to move is in some ways a sign of nobility because you're not required to.
8: Yeah. Mm -hmm. In one of the other interviews that I was reading from Michelle Clapton, she was talking about how Danny always has pants and boots on under her dresses.
7: Because oh.
8: she has this feeling of she's playing a queen and she's here and she's doing these queenly things, but she's always ready to run if she needs to. Yeah. That's very cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's dope. And I was like, Oh my gosh, that's so awesome. It's yeah. just a great detail
2: to let you know about I, I mean, and I've never mm-hmm. thought about that looking at what she's wearing. Yeah. Yeah. But,
8: but she says even the most elegant gowns. That,
3: that having the trousers underneath, I'd hope that inform uh Amelie's performance as well. You know, that yeah. that she'd feel less uh exposed and all that. So oh, in the character
0: point, yeah. level. Mm-hmm.
8: Speaking of the Tyrosh, I, I want to just say that I don't think that Dario's book description is ridiculous. I mean, it is ridiculous, but like from a <laughs> cultural perspective, like <laughs> yeah. I can totally buy this. Yeah. That, right. that this is not abnormal, you know, I don't know. I see people walking down the street with purple hair every day, so
3: His yeah. description didn't have you in stitches?
7: Yo. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> don't hem and haw about it, Sam. It was hair raising.
3: Can we put my favorite
0: my favorite Dario image up at this point, Aaron. I just want to. That
8: <laughs> <one>. Oh
0: yes. <laughs> well,
6: Book Dario's costume—it it gets a lot of flack, but it's not that far off from what Oberyn wears in season four in the show. Yeah, oh. yeah. yeah. <laughs> Oberyn's costume is bright yellow. Yeah, yeah. And still, like, right. nobody remarks it's, that it feels out of
3: place. But it's the contrast that really gets you. Like yellow and blue is such a strong. Of like a, he looks like a Cub Scout. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Contrast that he, he looks really loud. Dario the wee blow. Yeah.
8: Would it have been like a manic panic blue, or would it have been like just tinted or something? I don't know. I don't know. Like the Celts dyed everything blue. Whatever. They went naked into battle
7: just to freak people out. It's in Tyrosh they dye their hair blue, and and in Carth, the House of the Undying, they're just ingesting the dye. Hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. indigo was a big thing. Yeah, like that was you know, blue was a huge deal. Yeah, yeah. So, fashion
8: wise, anyway.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that I think that about wraps it up for everything with the costumes. It's just so dense. There's so much going on in every frame of uh, of the show.
8: <laughs> this is Fat Walda. I'm checking out for now. See you guys later. This is Isabel signing off. Goodbye.
0: Um, and stay tuned, everyone, for our discussion of cinematography with the return of Mutt and Jeff. I mean, I mean Matt and Jeff.
3: Moving to the art of cinematography, is cinematography just a fancy term for pretty shots? No, (laughs) cinematography is visual storytelling, it's what is in the frame, what isn't in the frame, what's the composition of the shot, what is the angle of the shot, what is the lighting, what is the colours, what imagery is being suggested, how is the shot telling the story. It should Uh work hand in hand with other visual elements of the show like costuming, production design, music, VFX, editing and all that sort of thing. TV is a showrunner's medium, it's a writer's medium and episodes have to conform to a house style because of that. A lot of Game of Thrones DPs, cinematographers have talked about this, but cinematographers and directors still have their own chance to imprint their own visual ideas for communicating the story as they see fit to a certain degree and we can see this in a lot of the storyboards for the show as well. Game of Thrones, like many other shows, uses colour grading to establish different associations the same way music does with its different leitmotifs. Mm -hmm. Uh, if you think of shows like Breaking Bad, any scene in Mexico is very heavily filtered on yellow. Oh yeah. Uh, if you think of movies like Inception, each dream state has a slightly different tinge of green or orange or whatever else to subtly orient the viewer in the state they're in. With Game of Thrones, uh, much the same way as they do with costuming styles and with different music motifs, they use different color palettes to orient the viewer wherever they are. Mm. Uh, one of the show's colorists, Gary Cullen, has said of D&D when they were starting the show, they were keen to differentiate the world because the show jumped among them locations. They wanted a look that would tell when you're in Winterfell or Dothraki, the Dothraki Sea he means. So you have things like the North is very blue. If you look at photos before the colorization. They look, you know, normal, they look, there's plenty of whites and stuff, but then a lot of blue filters on, Mm -hmm. which sometimes makes the actor's faces stand out in a weird way, but most of the time it works okay. Then you go even further blue beyond the wall, or even further north, rather, and it gets really, really, really blue. Then you go to the Lands of Always Winter, like you did in Season 4, Episode 4, and the blues are just off the charts to try and get the viewer to understand you're pushing up north means you're getting more blue. Right. You're going south means you're getting more orange, like when you're in Dawn. And when you're off in Essos, it's also going to be pretty warm colors for some locations, not for Bravos and places like that so much, which also mm-hmm. push on the cooler colors. Uh, but the show also was fairly desaturated in general. And I think this goes back to the points about how D&D said to Raymond Javadi, no flutes, no matter what," It's because they want to... <laughs> not have the show associated with typical fantasy stuff. If you think of very bright, saturated colors, it makes you think of cartoons and very like cheesy mm-hmm. fantasy. But if you desaturate yeah. it and you mute it a lot, people go, oh, wow, this is serious. This is adult entertainment. <laughs> not that adult, but this is entertainment for adults uh, rather. Jenny's but- blue dress. <laughs> <laughs> Play with her colors the The problem with that, especially in, because as the seasons have gone on, D and D have wanted things more and more desaturated and cooler to communicate the story point that this is getting more and more wintry. You know, the long night is coming. But the problem with that is this excellent work Michelle does with the costumes. It gets so much harder to tell, like what Isabel was saying with the wildlings. You know, animal patterns and that. If the show is this desaturated and flat, and you know, it's hard to actually see on the camera the amount of work that's going into these costumes, even though it's making a choice to communicate the story visually it's dulling other elements Mm
4: -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. oh yeah would
6: say that one of the things that harmed dorne in the show is that it doesn't have a distinct color filter it's intentionally the exact same palette that they're using for king's landing and king's landing was actually brighter back or uh more yellow red in season two um specifically when they first when Tyrion shows up it's very yellow but by season yeah. five, when they go down to the Dawn, it's very like stark and drab. It more it's darker than Winterfell is in like season one. Dawn
3: and same mm. color palette. It's like you said the other day, where some bits of Dawn, like when Jamie and Bron landed, were still filmed in um, Ireland. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They had the grassy tufts and things. There wasn't much of a sense of cohesion with Dawn at the storytelling level, at the, you know the yeah. location level, at the color level.
6: Like, I like the idea that certain regions have their own, like, style to it, in a way. And I think that the the part that I missed out was Dorn because, like, I'm in the books, and I'm reading it, and I'm picturing, like, sunsets and the sun beating down on everybody. But you don't get that feeling, and it doesn't show up through the camera lens at all. To some degree, I think D&D feel like it should be Mediterranean, but I've never gotten that feel with and It always felt that the image George was trying to create was this like desert area far to the south with a much different culture and not like the Shroyane of their past. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Did mm-hmm. the Reach have like a green color filter on it? Um, so,
2: like you were saying about like what Sam was saying about the flutes and Lord of the Rings and Fancy, maybe they don't want too much association with the color green because you can really associate if you wanted to the Uh, color green with Lord of the Rings. Like you have those vast pastoral scenes. Mm -hmm. um, So that might be something that they're really trying to veer away from.
0: Yeah, that's a good point.
6: Moving on to Sam's
3: choice shots. Mm. Some choice shots. The very (laughs) first episode opens with a few different shots of the wall. And a lot of perspective chains and varying shot types here are used to establish the smallness of the humans in relation to the largeness of the wall. And I think this is a lot more efficient and interesting a way to communicate the largeness of the structure rather than just having expository dialogue saying the wall's really big. <laughs> Using cinematography to communicate world building points like this was very important early in the show's run to try and avoid overwhelming viewers with expository dialogue because we all know how much viewers hate that. Things like David Lynch's <laughs> Dune back in the day did the wrong thing with how there were just so many damn words and definitions and everything, and even a you know great visual director like him didn't have the freedom to establish these points just through the visuals. But Game of Thrones did it quite well with that first episode,
0: for sure. Yeah, I mean that that first shot of the wall, yeah, that sticks with everyone, I think.
1: I love the tunnel shot. I think that's that's really outstanding of the the long tunnel and the uh, the two torches at the end of the tunnel, which is cool because it shows. Um, for me, and I'm not practiced or anything like that in this, but the the transition between the tunnel and then the wall afterwards shows us the height and the depth of the wall itself. So we're yeah. talking about a real big freaking object that, some, that viewers can associate mentally with the grandeur of, of the wall. And I think that's a really cool way that they introduced that shot in, in Game of Thrones.
0: For sure. It's a great shorthand. Yeah. For sure. And in the last shots,
5: they also reused that for Danny with her House of the Undying vision. Oh, yeah.
6: That's oh, well done Call back. point. You can also mm-hmm. see in that last frame where uh, they are walking beyond the wall how they have used the VFX to obscure the wall in the distance. Mm. That helps cheapen the shot because it gets harder um, to render and do that in VFX as that trails off in the distance. So they just like smear it with a bit of smoke, and you don't even notice it while you're watching it. Mm. But it helps keep the production values high, but also the costs low. That's a good point. Smoke is used a lot (laughs) in the VFX in Game of Thrones to help cheat on the VFX to make it look like it's better than it actually is. The cheapest thing you can do is to shoot shots at night because then you don't have to show objects in the distance as much. There's a natural obscuring of detail. But if you have to shoot things in the day like Hardhome or the Battle of the Bastards, What you do is you just throw smoke on the screen. You throw it to obscure objects into the distance. And it helps fuzz it out so that your eye doesn't pick up on that things look off. And it's the same thing. You look at the upcoming trailer. They have some kind of battle of fire again. What's in the distance that Jamie's riding in? It's a whole bunch of smoke. And you're going to see a lot more smoke in big battle shots. If you don't, then they've really gone out of their way to do something impressive.
3: Some interesting shots, I think, to view in connection with each other are these shots from the season one finale and the season six finale. The one on the left with varies and Littlefinger sets up huh. their relationship more prevalent in the show of the books where it's very much a rivalry and a duality. And it does this through the symmetry of the shot and the composition and the framing of the two figures being of the same height as opposed mm-hmm. to varying heights. And then on the right It seems like a similar thing Is being done between Santa and John And it even has a structure in the middle of them You know really selling the yeah. rivalry But then this shot actually changes And then they get both put in the same frame And you know they are much happier <laughs> But still we can see this as Perhaps a harbinger of what may be to come In season 7 A subplot we're all very enthusiastic about a potential stark rivalry stark bowl,
5: stark <laughs> bowl, stark <laughs> boy.
2: oh boy uh, do, so in the in the varies and little finger scene we don't see them together in the same shot uh not opposing one another later during that conversation right because like as you said Sansa and john come together and that sh- dissipates the tension whereas here that continues right with Varys and Littlefinger.
3: That's the last shot of the sequence, is Varys and Littlefinger being set up like that.
1: Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but is the first shot where Littlefinger is staring at the Iron Throne and Varys comes up to him? Yep. Oh, uh, yep. yeah, right. Yeah, so that's a right. great way to conclude out, because it becomes, um, and that's also the scene where they talk about Illyrio coming to visit Varys. Yeah. If, if I'm not, I don't, and it's been a while since I've seen season one. That's right. If I remember correctly. I think that's there's right something saying.
6: about your friend or something like that, that Littlefinger says. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I've seen you more I've seen you more recently than you've seen me sort of thing, I think is one of the, the dynamics that plays out in that scene.
5: Uh kinda of unrelated. Do you think they gave Kit Harrington like a little box to stand <laughs> on <laughs> <laughs>
1: To even his height out a oh, little bit. Like gosh. a little crate.
5: Yeah. I mean, she is much taller than him. <laughs> she really is.
1: Yeah. Do you want to introduce this next one, Sam, because it's awesome.
3: Sure. So, this shot of <laughs> Theon burning uh. a letter he'd written to Rob. Uh, is a shot I really love. Theon being the only visible thing inside the shot, swallowed up by the encroaching darkness, really communicates his state of mind, being alone, unsure of himself, grasping around, you know, in the darkness, and literally burning one of the few bridges he has left. It's a great example of telling his story and character arc through the visuals, you know, through cinematography rather than just through Mm -hmm. dialogue.
1: This will will sound um, sacrilegious, but I really appreciate how they communicated Theon's uh, turn-cloaking on Rob Stark in season two over what happens in A Clash of Kings. Because this this scene really illustrates that. Because I think you can read part of the letter um, right before this this shot, which is yeah. Theon saying, my father is planning to betray you. He's not going to join with you. Yeah. And then at the very end, he has this moment of self-reflection where he has this choice between Stark and Greyjoy, and he ends up choosing wrongly, as it turns out. And um, it's, it's cool. And, and, and right after this scene, if I'm not mistaken, too, is the, uh, the Theon baptism scene where they play the um, pay the iron price theme yes. that we were talking about earlier. Um, and he's baptized into the ironborn. So it, it communicates his embrace of,
4: mm-hmm.
1: of the ironborn at the expense of the Starks, of his, of his real family, um, his foster family being his real family, and then um, baptizing into the ironborn and all the horror that ensues from that.
3: That's that lovely yeah, that whole thing- uh, theme Aaron was talking about earlier with the swelling waves of the Theon Greyjoy theme as well playing yeah. in the baptism scene.
0: Right. Yeah, the whole thing about the darkness circling in on him, like, that's that's the exact effect you get reading his chapters in A Clash of Kings. So to just communicate that visually over, like, five seconds or ten seconds or however long this shot lasts, I mean, that's that's awesome. That's great because it does capture
6: exactly what happens to Theon. And you can sit there and imagine what it would look like if he had the entire set behind him and stuff sitting in like Balon's yeah. room. And it mm, becomes so dull in that moment. But the way that they've done it yes, here yeah. in the darkness just adds so it's much. Yeah.
2: He's just so small in it. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. The enormity of the. Dar- it's not just darkness coming in on him. Like they could have had it close up, but it's the enormity of it. Like he's framed in that lower third. Yep in like lower corner. Yeah.
6: yeah, and he's not in the center so it's like so- he's not centered as a person yeah. right now. He's very off kilt. Imbalanced. Imbalanced
2: yeah. as opposed to like the previous shot that we were just talking about.
6: Yeah, and it's not done in like you could you could take that and do it in a stupid way where he's like upside down on the top left corner and that would make no sense. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I don't know why you do that was <laughs> just do, like a spinning Theon in the middle of the screen. <laughs> <laughs> that's.
6: Oh my god. Like a. <laughs> and that's where the music adds to it too, because you put the Benny Hill theme behind him, like spinning in the center. It's like you have a totally different mood.
3: Oh, Sam, what's what's this you've sent me? I love the shot. Oh, yeah. So, this is from Season 1, Episode 9, Baylor, and it uses darkness and fire as that Theon shot does. Well, not in exactly the same way, but it uses those two elements. Uh, season 1 actually used loads of uh, candlelight and torchlight, which they relaxed in later seasons because producers didn't like apparently having to procure so many candles and set it up all the time. <laughs> yeah. Fair, fair. But the opening... Sequence of this episode, which is this segment of Ned and varies in the dark of Varys's torch I really love the interplay between the darkness of the dungeon, which Ned is, you know, all swallowed up in The light of Varys's torch, how the light reflects in Ned's eye I think it captures both the dim hope that varies is presenting to Ned really well As well as the way Ned keeps being bathed in shadows as Varys moves around kind of suggesting that Ned may be finally absorbing the shadowiness of King's Landing politics into himself and considering compromising his code of honor, as Varys is suggesting in the dialogue, which then, of course, he does later in the episode when he lies.
1: I would say that season one really captures the dynamic a Game of Thrones brings. Probably, It's more faithful than seasons that uh, succeeded. And this scene, straight from the books, but it's infused with the light aspect of it that really drives home how desperate Ned's circumstances are. And Varys, too, is creepy, but he's kind of, almost relatable if that makes sense in, in that scene because he's the only one mm. seeming with his head on his shoulders with like a plan and then he threatens Sansa and Arya in that scene too if I'm, if I'm remembering correctly. He does it in the books. Uh, what's, what's that line that Ned says? You know, I'm, I'm not a... F- I died, uh, years, I, ago I died a years ago. I died many years ago. Yeah, something like that. There's some powerful pathos in that scene and uh, really accentuated by the uh, the visual storytelling they, they went for.
6: It's in all cylinders. I can't remember if it's an interview from D&D or the director of photography, but they said like during the earlier seasons, they didn't have um, the large TV monitors that they have now. And so when they'd see, they'd shoot Sean Bean and they just like hold the camera on him and they couldn't tell in the shot if he was doing anything at all. But then they watched it back and they saw it in like, Oh, he's doing like all these tiny, like, minuscule like Sean Bean movements that <laughs> add so much to like Ned's character, but when they were shooting it, they were concerned like that they didn't have the shot at all.
3: I know, yeah, I've got a quote uh, from the director, uh God, how do you say his name? Alex Sakharov? Alex Sakharov, uh, yeah. yeah. Alex Graves. And it's it's in um it's in an article when he's praising uh the Alexa cameras because they're doing some shilling uh, for them since the show uses them. And he says uh regarding this shot the colorist sent me a message and said that I obviously knew what I was doing because the image was perfect, but I had no idea what I was doing. I just relied on the camera, <laughs> <It's deep. laughs> which can be found for
0: five ninety nine. No, um, all no, those cameras—they
6: <laughs> rent a lot. Of the newer Alexas, there are too many that they can't produce enough mm. for them, and so they rent them out to production studios as they need them. Really the alexa 65 which is on our sub the uh symbol for production topics is yeah, an alexa yeah. 65 hmm. nice cool. touch which was used to shoot rug one fun great movie. Well. So those
0: are some very fun facts <laughs> i just wanted to throw out there by the way that that edward's last chapter in the dungeon the equivalent of this scene includes the line like the dark was absolute he had as well been blind
2: yeah when yeah. Uh,
0: varus comes towards him the sudden light was painful to his eyes these images of light and eyes and the darkness all around him and all that the show gets it spot on i think um that's... yeah
5: it also works in an obvious way in this scene because ned's hostile to varus even though he's trying to help him and it's like the fire in your eyes you know that old thing uh... like how angry you are he's angry about where he is he's angry that he has to deal with varus and just the use of the torch in his eye like in the shot that sam showed us is a really great representation of that which Bean does later with his sneers and the way he talks to Varys, but right here you can just see he's really, really unhappy with what he's doing at the moment.
2: As you were saying, like Varus, like actually trying to help Ned, like and you can see that because the way Varys' face juxtaposes with Ned, like Varys' face is in light almost the whole time. Like you can see his whole face. So it like gives the idea of honesty. And if we want to, like, attribute things to the show that aren't necessarily in there I can do it. <laughs> go for it. The light, it symbolizes Ned's life, and then it disappears down the hall.
5: I like it. It mm-hmm. yeah. walks away, yeah. Was that before or after he warged into ice on his death? <laughs>
2: um, a- after. Sure. After. The light, I don't know, they do a lot of focus on the torch, even as Varys departs, and then like they cut to Ned, and then they just watch the torch like go out, and like, that's cute. It's
3: a pretty lit shot.
2: Mm. (laughs) (sighs) not as lit as Shireen's shot
6: (laughs) another great thing about that scene the way that they shoot Ned there to the side with the darkness obscuring his face but you can see his beard and his ratty hair it makes him look so much like Jamie in season 2 and season 3 after he's been captured by the Star Forces that it really creates this great contrast
3: these shots from season 3 episode 7 of King Joffrey and Tywin Lannister are another great use of perspective like the establishing war shots were but here they're used to communicate the shifting power dynamics between Joffrey and Tywin. The more impersonal wide shot establishes the apparently natural state of things, the king being above a lord, but that second shot has them of equal height as Tywin climbs the stairs, then the third shot is above Joff- to make tywin tower over joffrey with the high angle establishing the dominance and then in the fourth shot as tywin leaves the camera is pulled back situating tywin is taller than joffrey in the frame now the dialogue is obviously you know establishing all these same shifting power dynamics but the cinematography alone commuting yeah. the story also works very well in its own regard it's also
6: good in the second shot because it's posed between the two pillar fires on there showing like that they're about to go head to head and stuff Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a very simple uh using the angles is very simple to showcase like dominance and uh subversion and right. such but it works very effectively in this scene with a person who is sitting on an on a throne as the king and then his advisor who's supposed to be below
1: him but isn't. Well it's also interesting too is the camera how the camera moves in the sh- in the in the, in the al- alternating shots. The first frame has um is kind of From above, uh, over to Joffrey being above Tywin, the second shot is, uh, again, from below, and it's facing towards Tywin's back, and you're still, Tywin is almost equal distant or equal height to to Joffrey. And the third shot, I think, is the most interesting one, and that's literally facing above Tywin Lannister's head as he looks down at Joffrey itself. So you have that dominance factor that's done in multiple ways beyond just um you know the fire and the actual um, place of of these of the characters so you have them um done in the, with the camera work as well which i think is really really cool and even the fourth shot which is shot from below up still shows tywin towering over joffrey as he, as he exits the um the perch of the iron throne yeah, I and mean-
2: and he's not just towering over joffrey this is like a technique that go- you'll see it a lot in um ancient egyptian Hieroglyphics and drawings. It's called like hier- hierarchical proportion. Like, Tywin is larger than Joffrey, which shows that he has more power and he's more important than Joffrey. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, yeah.
6: Also because of the way that Jack Gleeson, uh, who's playing Joffrey in that shot, and he is not looking up at Tywin, which in one aspect shows that he's not willing to like look Tywin in the eye, but also because it's angled downward on his head, it emphasizes the gold of hair instead of black of hair. Mm. Well, that's an interesting story that's aspect. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. One thing
5: I, I, uh, I always like about this scene that always makes me chuckle. Is just trying to imagine this with the book Iron Throne, just Tywin like climbing up twenty feet of like swords to try and get up there to t- tower over Joffrey. <laughs> yeah. It's something that just because the show made the the actual Iron Throne much smaller, it makes for a scene they probably could not do if they had made it uh, real. That's a great point. Yeah.
2: How many times do you think Tywin had to do that to Ares?
5: Constantly, right? King Sta- King Scab, he was always on there getting stabbed by the throne. That's a good point. He loved it. I imagine he sat on like the bottom step a lot. <laughs> just like sat there.
0: <laughs> Maybe he just he can't sit still, so he's like in the in the iron throne, you know, like this, and like keeps getting cut. <laughs> no, it's like, oh, this is so uncomfortable. Yeah.
3: Tywin, can you get me a standing desk, please? That would be. <laughs> <laughs> this one is from season four, episode nine. Watches oh, on the wall. Oh no! That's just and mean, like I'm how we injured. were talking. Oh no with the music about how the piano and the organ were being a jarring because they're a technique, they're an instrument not normally used. This had slow motion used in this shot, which is a technique the show very rarely uses. So, it's a kind of intentional jarring thing. And I think that, again, communicates how jarring a tragedy like this is for John and also how, you know, such a tragic moment. Time feels like it's slowing down when you're in that. And then the camera keeps pulling back in this sequence and you can see the battle keep ranging around him and it just really frames, you know, the personal tragedy amongst a larger... Uh, conflict really well to my mind. In this
0: shot in particular, the one you picked, it's kind of cool how you have Egret's half of the
1: frame literally kissed by fire.
0: Oh, yeah, I was, That's I was noticing that too. Ice behind John. Yeah, it's it's
5: this
1: very dark yeah. icy side. The behind flames John. are on. Right, yeah. yeah, you got the blue behind John and the red behind Egret. But the flames are on John
6: because
1: he's the song of ice and fire
6: together. Actually, it kind of looks like a halo when you when you. <laughs>
2: Yeah, it's like Jesus. Oh.
5: Jesus. Almost like a fire crown.
3: That's
6: dour. My hair's on.
5: <laughs>
3: Ralph <Dauer. laughs> Dour. Can you put my hair out, please? Does the duality between them remind you of anything? It's, it's sort of Cartesian. <laughs> um. <laughs>
6: Cartesian dualism? <laughs> The slowness of the shot works despite it being in the midst of a battle where you wouldn't normally expect something like this because mm. of the emotional impact that it carries on John. that even though he would recognize that there is danger all around him, he's lost in this moment of losing Egret, where he doesn't care about anything else and he's almost depressed to the point of like, if I get stabbed here holding her, it doesn't matter to me, like I've lost the woman that I love sort of thing. Exactly, yeah.
3: Where, and he's not giving a monologue yeah. saying any of that. That's all yeah. on the camera. It hmm. It's not terrible. like John yeah.
6: is standing around a dragon or something, like in the middle of a battle where spears right.
1: are being thrown everywhere. Sort Who of. would do that? Yeah. <sighs> that would be bad. They do the same slow motion at night shot in Blackwater after Tyrion's uh, nose is sliced but not cut off. Ah, you're right where yeah. he sees mm. Tywin Lannister and the Tyrells arriving and defeating Stannis' army. Right. And- um, it's the same sort of motif, too, where Tyrion's at this point where he thinks that everything is lost and he's about to die. as his banner slaughtered around him, and then, you know, mm. salvation arrives in the, in the form of his father and his, uh, his new allies.
3: It's also
6: great because despite, like, in that scene where they don't have the budget to do the huge cavalry charges like they do later with Stannis or they do with Sansa, and the Vale army. They just show it from Tyrion's perspective, which is only like eight or so horses charging forward. Oh, but yeah. it conveys the exact same information for much cheaper, which is a very effective use of all of those elements together. Yeah, that
3: was both uh, Neil Marshall directed episodes, I believe. So yep. he seems to definitely Correct. have a pet technique with that slow motion.
6: Well, Neil Marshall didn't direct... Uh... The Stannis stuff in the show takes place in 4.10, after John, it ends oh, at four yes, oh nine. Right. It's just the I don't battle. know though if they, the wall battle though is short. I don't know if
3: they cut that to the next episode in editing, and they he, Neil Marshall shot it
6: or I not. Think,
1: I think that's probably likely.
3: The directors I've talked before, I know, um, but uh, they have to use special software to like share all different parts of the episodes because they're more disconnecting mm-hmm. the more normal shows because of all the different locations. You wonder how that works uh, yeah. with mm-hmm. getting paid mm-hmm. and uh, everything. It must be yeah. quite a mess for the producers. Just one more thing about this, I guess, is that I feel like they kind of earn the pan
0: out at the end, or the, uh, zoom out at the end, where um, you see the people fighting around John, because it starts off, this sequence starts off with John leaping down and doing a little tour of the courtyard, and seeing everyone fighting in real time, and all that kind of stuff, so it, mm. it it's like it, it ends with this sort of echo of that original opening yeah. 360 shot that is awesome, like the... The 360 battle of the wall that shot track and shots amazing. yeah that's that's yeah. really great so but so you kind of you feel the same echo of that here i think or at least i did i'm going to do
5: something unconventional here i'm going to praise the show versus what george wrote i found this more effective than what happened with john in the books where he just kind of passes out and he doesn't really know if egret's dead and he wakes up and finds out she is i thought this was and you just sort of see it off screen how it's affecting john and in like little ways throughout his head whereas here I just preferred to see the actual death shot and how it affected him in the moment instead of like weeks later down the line.
6: I actually like it more in the books because it's more realistic in the chaos of battle and like something like yeah. this in the what the universe that George is portraying is not very Hollywood, but I think this is a a fair mix of Hollywood into the books where it's it's ok. I would have liked, though, John just to have discovered Egret later, like laying with arrows in her. The chaos of war and commentary on that. I think it's more thematic. Than, Dave you know, Hill's big idea. It's,
3: they're two different apples, tomatoes. The only reason I like the book's version better is because when I'm reading a book, I don't have to withstand Kitty Harrington's acting.
1: <laughs> God damn! <laughs> wow, He's pretty good in this shot. Come on, you gotta give him that. Wow
5: brutal well in this one he he doesn't talk a lot so that's that's good for you (laughs) that's true yeah i i didn't like when ollie just just kind of shot her out of nowhere i thought that (sighs) was a lame way to finish off the scene but the rest of it i liked and then ollie's
6: the biggest failing of editing in the show ollie's entire hatred is generated by based upon them having reaction shots, which are... It, there's a person who edited The Phantom Menace a long time ago. It's called The Phantom Edit. It was one of the first like big fan yeah. edits that actually received notoriety. And what he did is uh, he went in and he took out what are called uh, Jar Jar antics, which are George Lucas liked to cut to any scene that Jar Jar was in and show him at the end of the shot doing something crazy and that took the audience out of the moment that's occurring. And what they did is, I know we talked before about um, uh, Dave Hill and this idea, I don't hate Ollie. I think a lot of the hatred for him is because of how he has been edited into these scenes to make them about Ollie, where you stop the moment and you see how Ollie reacts to everything. There are so many cuts to ollie in reaction shots that are just done in editing that it becomes really jarring to the audience to see these moments and if they had just stuck with ollie fighting john to start season five and then they had what is he He comes to talk to john about how he's uncomfortable with the stuff and then maybe they could have or cut the scene later where he goes to talk to sam if you just have those moments but you don't like have cuts to ollie in the shield hall and cuts to ollie <laughs> right before mance gets shot with an arrow and john like bumps into his shoulder and stuff if you don't do those moments ollie is fine and works totally well within this sh- the show's universe reaction shots
0: jar jar shots yeah it's
6: a it's a failure of editing of not understanding like how you're cutting it and doing too much to try and emphasize something that should not be emphasized.
2: Yeah, Ollie was just shoved in our faces.
6: Yeah, he's, he's an intrusive interviewing experience. We didn't need to shot an arrow into our faces. <laughs> and that's not Dave Hill's mm-hmm. fault. It's not Dave Hill's fault that they did that stuff with Ollie and turned him into this kind of character. Like, I can't. It's quite a what are you supposed to do? quite a
0: hill to die on there Yet he
6: gets the blame <laughs>
3: uh.
2: <laughs> you anyway, made that joke before
3: <laughs> moving on to the last shot last <laughs> shot, last <laughs> shot. Oh, <yes. laughs> Is-
2: also of
3: John and Egret, but much earlier <sighs> in a happier time. The show's run. <laughs> That's so funny. I, I was,
2: was actually just about to ask you because I know you like this shot. How you feel the previous shot compares to the way this one? Well, framed. this one
3: starts out. For the record, I love this shot. Cheesy as it is, this one starts with John and Egret much more close uh, together in the frame, and then it gradually pans out to reveal you know the great vistas beyond the wall on the other side, and yeah. it's you know literally communicating they're on top of the world. You know, and they're so much in love and a union's so great that all those things. And also that they have the whole world in front of them through how it's framing them on top of the wall and beyond, well, it's not really beyond, behind the wall being in front of them. Uh, and I really like how it gradually pulls back to, in a kind of awe-inspiring, positive way instead of that kind of negative, awesome in the wow sense that the establishing shots of the wall from the first episode did. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's much more of a romantic presentation. It's emphasizing, you know, the world out in front of the two lovers And where it's placed in the episode, which is The Climb, Season 3, Episode 6, is right after Littlefinger's creepy chaos montage and Joffrey's murder of Mm. Roz. (laughs) And so I think that was a great editing choice to kind of reject Littlefinger's cynical philosophy with like a promotion of love and the triumph of couples and that sort of idea, which I think is a very positive message for Game of Thrones. He literally, he ends his speech by saying the climb is all that matters. And then they immediately
0: repudiate that by showing it's not the climb that so, matters. So Aaron, why
1: don't you like this? Show? I
0: don't like the shot
6: because it the angles are off in it when they developed it. The problem is, this is nitpicking the, the CGI VFX, but like it really took me out of the moment because I could, the uncanny valley effect went off. Um, but what they're doing here is you have... The shot where they shot everybody on blue screen, where it's almost direct on that set um, at a level angle. And the person who is developing the painting or the seat, it's a mashup of like VFX behind it um, of this landscape, developed it where the camera is like more angled downward yeah. overhead at the trees below. And so when you squish these two scenes together, the angles don't match and when i first saw it it breaks my immersion in the moment like the you wouldn't get as much background um if it was angled properly like you would yeah you'd take the eyes and I'll photoshop yeah it would be flatter you wouldn't get like more of the ground in sure, that scene and right. you would get more of the wall and i, I think you, man. that's what really took me out of it. it's not so much that i i i like the moment that they're creating between john and neegrit they they were going for the vista too much to where what they had shot did not match
2: the perspective
6: what they were trying to do later on in the CGI and i i think it worked to for most people but it did not work for me who, who like noticed that it's off while i was first watching it and it was like oh my god that yeah. was my reaction basically
2: the horizon point would basically like i guess be almost beyond par or like below the wall I understand. Yeah,
6: I'll
0: I'll do a quick Mm. Photoshop. Yeah, no, I I I can see what you're saying now. That like it it does look a lot like two people standing in front of a painting. It's a beautiful painting, and I like it a lot. Everything
3: Aaron's saying is valid. I don't really, I don't necessarily disagree, but I don't think like realism is inherently always the best thing. Like I think Aaron's ideas would have made it a better shot, and it certainly would have been better executed. But I don't think realism is always what you have to strive for. Like, I kind of like that Oh, this could have been done better, I'm not disagreeing with it I kind of like that it looks stylized and not quite there.
6: Well, all you do is you when you shoot the camera of the footage of Johnny Egret, you make sure that it's shot from a higher angle and then it matches. Yeah. The background certainly. painting. The problem is because you have a disconnect I don't even know if the person um, who developed the painting, the painting could have been done like before, before the season was even shot and the director shooting it in the sound stage, or maybe they were trying to shoot it from a higher angle, but they couldn't get the camera up high enough um, inside the set
3: stage. I I, I don't know well, why. The camera would have um, to be above 700 feet because of shooting <laughs> on the wall. Because they're obviously on top of the wall. It almost looks yeah. like
5: it's taken from like a helicopter. <laughs> One thing that's especially good about this shot is I think in the fandom, we tend to focus on... Interpersonal stuff and like what different humans are doing with each other. And with this one, with John and Egret, I mean, with yeah, with John and Egret, it's really showing even if John is Rhaegar's son and he is the prince that is promised, like compared to the, the place they're in and like the wall itself and like the, the forces of nature going on in this show behind it, he's really, really yeah. small. I mean, I mean, it's dramatic here, but that's sort of the
3: point. I love that take,
0: yeah, and I think and you don't get a lot of those moments i think just because it's hard to do that with like any i mean any budget really but like you know stretched as thin as game of thrones's budget is it can be hard to find those moments where you're like oh wow look at all that i thought one they sh- they should have done better was uh danny when
5: she was in the uh, dothraki sea they sort of kept it when it was on her in sort of smaller shots but it's supposed to be at least they when george described it it's supposed to be this huge expanse and it, again she's supposed to feel tiny in this world and because of the way they shot it it felt more kind of like she was on a stage which what aaron is saying with
0: this one that one kind of ruined it for me hmm. i wouldn't have noticed that but i'm gonna look for that next time and i'm gonna ruin the show for myself <laughs> <laughs> and then she drops her ring and i hate everything about that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> a hobbit lay here i think is the takeaway <laughs> <laughs>
5: That Jorah has a homing beacon for Danny wherever she is. They've taken
0: the Danny to eyes <laughs> and <laughs> oh,
6: I was just this is the the quick and dirty thing as soon as it gets uploaded. Oh, that's um,
0: that's really simple.
2: Oh, oh, I different. see. That's actually really whip that up yeah. quickly. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah.
6: That's why I mean, like, how it should be framed within the angle of the shot to maintain. But you don't get the, like, trees and vista. Yeah, problem. right. You miss out
3: on... Could you, like, pull it, like, nearer, like, to kind of get it to the same point of the wall, taking up the same amount of space? Or would that put, like, a weird angle on the land beyond it? Like, it would be kind of too curved. Does that make sense?
6: With the angle that they shot it in, there's no way to do it except like this. Yeah. Unless they shot it from a higher overhead angle right, right,
3: as they pull right. it
4: out.
6: Yeah. There's no way to shift that because you don't have the pixels of the tops of their heads in the well, wall. But yes, that's why it took me out, because that's what it what life-ish would have looked like in that moment. Right. Since you
3: brought up George Lucas earlier, why don't we all try and get D&D to retroactively change the special effects of this scene on the home releases? Should I, mm. Have you seen
6: the shot where I uh, took out Bloodraven's Eye in the cave of the Children of the Forest? Yes. Jeff's uh, yeah. yeah. yes. sure. seen it. I like no, that.
3: I, I like the sound of it.
5: Anything that makes Bloodraven more Brendan Rivers is good. I hate a when thousand eyes in
3: one, and he has two. It's uh, it's just a, it's just an expression. To end on a
6: high note, my favorite shot uh, from Game of Thrones is that scene in season five when Jorah captures Tyrion from the Valentin brothel. Well, I guess it's the scene preceding that. They show Jorah like holding on to the glass, drinking in there, but you don't actually see Jorah, and the camera like moves around and shows yeah. Dan or yep. Tyrion and uh, Varys talking there, and then it pulls out and you see Jorah sitting there. I think is the best use of motion yeah. as far as cinematography shooting that the show has ever done yeah. to create an atmosphere and a reveal like that. It
3: worked beautifully
6: love that scene.
2: Butterfully. It's
6: even better than the 360 shot that was very complicated
3: uh, at the wall, yeah, it's, I would say. It's not it's as, as technically impressive, shots. but it communicates the story in mm-hmm. uh, such a brilliant way. Yeah. Right. More sure. It
6: worked really well also because we were, c- as book readers, you knew that that scene was coming, but because of the way it was shot, it was like a reveal where you forgot that that was happening and it showed Jorah sitting there, and I just thought that was masterful you know who the director was of that Valentine scene with Jorah? Who? Mark Mehot. Oh, really? uh,
0: don't hate don't hate too much. But the circle joke, so, man. He filmed he did film the greatest chase scene of our generation. <laughs> well, thank you everyone for listening to episode six of Maester Monthly. We hope you've enjoyed the subreddit highlights and our discussion of elements of the show. Uh, as always, you can find us on Twitter at Maester Monthly. Please like our tweets, which are hilarious. And follow us on Twitter and YouTube and other social media websites. I think those are our only ones, actually. WordPress as well. You can find our website at WordPress, com. I think. And as always, thanks to our users for creating all of these awesome posts and discussions to talk about every month. There's always fresh content on reddit.com slash r slash and fire i've been michael bookshelf stud thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you next time